morning, everyone. Um, I hope you can hear me okay through the mask. Uh, it is six o'clock and I will call this special meeting of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education to order. It is good to see everyone in person. Um, the first item on our agenda this evening is the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'll next seek a motion to adopt tonight's agenda. So moved. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Do I have a second? Second. Is that Ms. Borgman? Borgman. Thank you, Ms. Borgman. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Now I will turn it over to Dr. Fulton for his presentation of the overview of the district learning plan for 2020-2021. Good evening, board. It's great to see you. Literally, great to see you. It's been a long time since we've had a, a meeting in person, and so it's, it's nice to get uh, back to a point where we can physically uh, see each other. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Tonight... Uh, we have uh, a rather lengthy presentation for you on a learning plan that really in its genesis started last March when we shut down schools in Kansas due to COVID-19. We quickly last March put together a learning plan that was used last spring and spent the spring working to implement that plan. And then as soon as school was out, and even really before then, we were starting to work on what the next generation of learning would look like in our COVID-19 world. We did so without any certainty of exactly what the fall would bring. And so we had to build a model that included uh, contingencies for lots of unknowns. The group behind me and many others have been working tirelessly since March to both get school up and running in a new way this past spring and to build what is a new design for learning. I want to thank them for their hard work. They have, they have worked tirelessly. Many of them have not stopped working since March. They've been working through the summer and last night, I know it on, on uh, I have, I have personal knowledge of this, or at least I've been told this, and I believe it totally, is people were working as late as midnight last night, getting our documents updated so they could reflect the most current information that we were working with as a school district. Now, that might sound like an easy task, but as we know, the conditions on the ground are changing almost daily. And every time a variable changes, it impacts our plan. So tonight... In this, as we present this plan to you, I want to emphasize that this is a living document. We are not striving for perfection. What we are working hard to produce is a system of learning that can survive whatever the health conditions are on the ground. And very importantly, keep every student and staff member safe. You're going to see that theme ring throughout this presentation. And so let's begin. Now, here's what we're going to do. I am going to walk through literally all of these slides. 
I'm going to do it quickly because there's a lot of them. My goal is to give you a big picture overview of what the plan is about. And then, as we're doing that, please write down questions. Because then we're going to come back and we're going to start with the learning piece. And you'll have an opportunity to ask questions that you have about the learning section. And then we'll go to operations. And at that point, you can ask questions about operations, which will include safety. Presenting with me tonight is Shelby Ravick, our, uh, our district nurse. And Shelby has been working nonstop collaboratively, both within the district and at the county and state levels, to try to put together a safe learning plan for all of our students and staff. All right, so let's begin. At our core, everything we do comes back to our mission. Equity matters. We know last spring that there were a number of students who were not able to connect in ways we wanted them to with learning. It is critical that this year we meet their learning needs. It's not going to be easy. We'll talk about the strategies we're going to use to do that here uh, during this presentation. But equity matters, and that's really what we're after in this plan. It's also important to note we're going to stay focused on our three strategic plan objectives as they're supported by our strategies. Our focus is, as always, clear. It's amazing to think about with everything that we're dealing with, that, that first goal of every child having a personalized learning plan is taking on new meaning by the day. And this plan really speaks to the fact that we are going to work with students at an individual level to the best of our ability. There are going to be challenges. And we're going to talk candidly about some of those challenges with you tonight. We also want to make sure that every single child is mastering those important uh, priority standards, those essential competencies that they need for life success. We know there will be children walking in with learning loss. We need to understand where they are in their learning, and we need to navigate them through this learning process this year and not only get them one more, a year or more of growth, but also make sure that they're getting to grade level expectations or beyond, or for that matter, course level expectations. And then finally, we're going to do all this by trying to help our students continue to develop the interpersonal skills they need for life success. Now, through, since March, we've been working on three, uh, three major aspects of this work. Making sure we have a safe learning and work environment, making sure that children are learning, and then that we have the supports in place to help students be successful. That's really the operation side of it. I mentioned that this is a work in progress. This is a living document. It will continue to be updated as we go along. We recognize there may be a few imperfections in them. We're not going to worry about that right now because we'll get those adjusted. Our goal is to get a plan and start working it. So we're going to start with, uh, we've got three sections of this report, safe learning and work environment. In that section, uh, that, that Shelby will be talking about, we're going, to, we're going to be talking specifically about what we know about the science of this disease and the steps that we need to take to keep people safe. We are working, we have asked for gating criteria. Now, what are gating criteria? 
Gating criteria are metrics that tell you when it is safe to transition from remote learning to hybrid learning and then to take all kids in class. We do not have specific gating criteria at this moment, but we are asking for it and that's going to be important to our future success. So hopefully that's something that can be done in collaboration with both the state and the county. We also are going to talk about learning options. Now, boiled down to its simplest form, here's what the learning options look like. You can do a remote-only model, and, and that would be for first semester. You can do remote-only for first semester. Or, if you would like to go in person, you can choose that one as well. And then based on gating criteria, you will either be doing remote learning, or you'll be doing hybrid learning, or you'll be doing on-site learning. Okay? So you'll be doing one of those three. In either case, whether you're doing remote only or whether you're going to go into the in-person model, realizing you could be in any one of those three modalities at any point during the year, we're going we're gonna to focus all the classes on mastery of grade level and uh, course priority standards. And then finally, we'll work through operations and you can see the categories that we're going to address tonight. So this is a point at which I'm going to turn it over to Shelby Ribak. Ribak, she is absolutely, she's our district nurse. She's fantastic. And she has been a key leader, again, both in the county and in the state to, uh, to address issues around uh, the health and safety of students and staff. So Shelby, it's all yours. Thank you, Dr. Fulton. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. So, uh, fair warning, when I reviewed this presentation with coworkers, it was dubbed the gloom and doom presentation. So I apologize for that. Uh, we are currently not doing well in Johnson County. We currently have 4,158 cases, the most of any county in the state of Kansas. Last week, Kansas was named a red zone state by the White House for having more than 100 new cases per 100,000 population. Georgia Tech developed a tool showing in Johnson County if you're at an event with 100 people, there's a 92% chance that one person there has COVID. And we know that's all it takes, right? As you recall, back in April, the White House developed criteria supporting the CD, supported by the CDC, stating we need to show a 14-day downward trend prior to proceeding with a phased opening. This is what is happening in Johnson County. We did well in April and May after stay-at-home orders were implemented, but starting the first part of June, we saw increases in large gatherings, people weren't social distancing, and wearing masks somehow became an issue of a constitutional right versus doing what's right during a public health crisis. This chart shows Johnson County's non-long-term care facility percent positive tests at 9.4%. We need to be down around 3% in order to proceed with a phased reopening. This next slide shows new cases reported each day in our county. Again, showing we did well in April and May, but our case numbers are abysmal for June and July. Everyone needs to do their part with social distancing, wearing a mask, 
avoiding large gatherings and practicing good hand hygiene to reduce these numbers to a point that we can start having serious conversations about school. While we still don't know everything we need to know about COVID-19, we do know that it is spread by respiratory droplets released when people talk, cough, or sneeze. Those droplets are about half the size of a human hair. Early research is showing very tiny respiratory drops may be picked up by the ventilation system. Those are about one three hundredths of the width of a human hair, and they can be spread throughout a room. Spread can also occur on hands from a contaminated surface and then to the eyes, nose, or mouth. The science is very clear that the following mitigation measures work. Stay home when you're sick. Social distance of at least six feet so that those respiratory droplets fall to the ground instead of making it to others. Wear a mask properly. That means covering your nose and your mouth. And also that prevents your respiratory droplets from being picked up in the ventilation system. Proper hand hygiene, cleaning and disinfecting frequently, and cohorting, small groups. That way you don't expose very many people and not that many people can expose you. There are identified challenges, particularly that um, kids can't do these things very well. But the bigger part is human behavior. What happens within our community will dictate what can happen in our schools. If we start, if we start seeing strict adherence to these mitigating measures, we will see a dramatic decline in cases. The CDC also tells us that the lowest risk to students and staff is virtual only classes. Risk increases with small in-person classes, but it can be done if we do a good job of cohorting students, socially distancing them, requiring masks for those who are able and it's safe to do so, and limiting shared supplies. The highest risk for our students and staff is full in-person classes with no mitigating measures in place. So with very high community transmission like we're seeing now in Johnson County, we may have to stay in that lowest risk category. As we see cases trending down, we can open up to some smaller groups of students and staff under controlled circumstances. And as we move toward very low community activity related to COVID, we can look at even larger classes and adding back events and activities. And I will say this again, what is happening in our community will dictate what can happen in our schools. And so I will close with this. Many of us were concerned about the original American Academy of Pediatrics statement um, with the push for return to school. They have since updated their position statement and they now say, we must pursue reopening in a way that is safe for all students, teachers, and staff. They state public health officials must make recommendations based on evidence not politics. And we should leave it to health experts to tell us when to open schools and listen to the educators to shape how we do it. And that's the end of my presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shelby. Okay, well, that's a rather uh, sobering look at where we are in Johnson County at the moment. 
And it was those data that I was looking at when I was asked by the press last week about what we would do if we had to start school today. And I said, well, that was simple. We'd be remote. Those data are clear. We get to go back to school when, as a community, we decide to change our behavior, bring these numbers down, and get to a point where we're safe. Uh, when you look at the models around the world, and we saw that uh, this past uh, late spring in, in Europe and somewhat in Asia, they got to go back to school, but their numbers went way down, and they controlled it. And when they went back up, they went back to a remote learning mode, or they didn't have school. So that's the nature of this, of this virus. And so what we have to do is understand it and work uh, in ways that ensure staff safety with the ultimate goal, of course, we all want our children back in school, but we have to do it in the right way. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been doing a lot of is listening. And so we did a, we did a thought exchange, which, as you know, is a, is a social media tool that you, get, you pose a question and then the intended audience gets to respond back and give their thoughts. And so we did a thought exchange with parents that asked this question. With all that there is to consider, what are your thoughts and questions about the reopening plans? Now, we did this after we had released our initial reopening plans. And uh, it, this is amazing. 6,800 people participated. So many parents were involved. You can see the thoughts and the ratings. Because you get to give your thoughts, but you also get to go give a rating on a thought. So if I like a thought, I might give it a five. If I don't like a thought, I might give it a one. There were a lot of people interacting with these thoughts. <laughs> so that's, that was a participation. That's the biggest partition, participation rate we've had so far in a thought exchange. It was fantastic. And so here were kind of the, the, the top thoughts. And, and this is an example of what, of what the top thoughts look like. So, you know, a lot of people are very nice. They really appreciate all the work that was being done. And uh, they want a safe environment. And then they had lots of questions. You know, what happens if school's canceled again? Um, are we actually going to have class? Is it going to look like it did last spring? Is it going to look different? And then, uh, hey, what happens when somebody gets sick? What do we, what do, we do then? And so you, these, you get an idea, a sense of what the thoughts were by looking at this. Now, this one's a little bit harder to read. But one of the things that you can do is you can kind of look at um, what do people think about, um, about each other's thoughts. And, and I'm not going to go through all of this, but I do want to say this that we are reflective of most communities. There are people who absolutely believe that we should do remote learning. There are people who absolutely believe that kids should be back in school. And then you've, you have folks in between. We're no different than anywhere else in our country. And so we are going to hear, and we have already heard through Thought Exchange and through emails we're receiving, Lots of different points of view. But this gives people a chance to kind of interact with each other. Now, we did the same thing with staff. And we posed this question. We had a pretty good, uh, pretty good interaction on that, too. In fact, we had 1,200 staff participate in this thought exchange. And you can see all the thoughts and uh, the ratings that occurred. Here's, here's kind of what was on uh, top thoughts on the staff's mind. You know, 
again, interesting, kind of matches up with the parents. What happens if somebody tests positive? You know, do we shut the school down? Is it the class? What happens to me? What happens to my students? Do we have to quarantine? How, late, how long will we be out? What are the guidelines? And by the way, on those kinds of questions, those are all things that we work directly with the county on. There are answers to those questions. We're not going to go into all that tonight, but those are the sorts of things that we work directly with the county on. We take our guidance from the county health department. Um, you know, there were concerns about learning. How are we going to make sure that kids are able to learn? What will online instruction look like? How are we going to make sure social distancing occurs in our schools? And we've got a lot of modifications to make. How are we going to pay for all this? So this gives you a sense of what's on staff's mind. And uh, so that, that I think is helpful. And we're, you know, in putting this plan together, we took all of those thoughts, all of those themes, and we really looked over our plan carefully and began to adjust the plan to make sure that we could answer some of those questions. And we're not done. Like I said, this is a living document. There are, there are questions being posed for which we do not yet have answers, but we will. For example, there's a lot of questions around human resources, um, like some of the ones I just explained, that we're working on an FAQ uh, to address. Of course, many, many issues around human resources and concerns about uh, personal health have to be handled one-on-one -on -one with staff. But those are things that we're paying attention to. Uh, we're going to develop an FAQ on for big picture stuff. And then, of course, human resources will, as always, do a great job of working with folks to work through individual situations. Now, we also, after we released this, uh, asked uh, parents what their preference was for a learning environment for their child. And we gave them three choices. They could be blended, they could be on site, uh, or they could be remote. Now, when we did this, we asked for the parents to, int to do it for each of their children. So this isn't number of parent responses you're going to see. This is based on parent responses for each of their children. So this represents children. And we also asked about Internet access and, and transportation options. Um, here's what we saw in terms of uh, participation rates. And you, you can see it wasn't 100%, but it, this is more than enough data to give us a good idea of where our parents are on their thinking. And I might add, once we're done with tonight, next week, we're going to engage with parents again around which modality of learning they would like to have their child in. Only this time, it will be more definitive in terms of what their choice is for their child. This was simply asking people's preference so we could get an idea of what our needs might be. Um, on the uh, on the student attendance preferences, uh, this was this was really uh, enlightening for us. You know, about 25% or so of the parents are are very seriously looking at remote learning, and that that applies across all all age levels. Uh, Forty some percent uh, really would prefer um, on-site learning, and then uh, a pretty substantial uh, group, 30 upper 20s, 30% were interested in the blended model. So that's, that gave us a good idea of where people are. And uh, so that was helpful to get that information from the parents. Now, we also did about a 15-question staff survey. The complete survey is found in your documentation that you have. I'm not going to go through all the slides. I'm just going to highlight a few of the key, key findings that we had. Uh, this first one really addresses the issue of 
knowledge? Do, am I, do I feel informed about this, about this virus? And uh, to a pretty substantial degree, people agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. So they've been paying attention and, and they're keeping informed about it. Uh, we also asked, you know, how's this been working remotely? Has that worked for you? Uh, do you feel like you've been effective? And you can see the distribution there that um, a number of the certified staff did, did feel that they were able to work effectively. Not all, of course. But, uh, and then for classified staff, it's a little bit more of an equal distribution. And again, I'm not going to interpret these for you. I just want to kind of describe the trend data. I think the data actually speak for themselves. Uh, and then it's this very important question. I feel comfortable uh, in returning to work in person. And you can see the concern that exists among staff about coming back to school in person. We also asked, hey, you know, if we install hand sanitizers and, and do social distancing, we do those things that Shelby was just talking about, does that increase your comfort in returning physically, uh, physically to work? And um, you do see comfort rise a little bit, but there's still a lot of concern, right? Understandable. And then we did a, uh, we posed a question on, on risk conditions. Uh, we took the risk conditions from the CDC and we asked folks, hey, who has one or more of those risk conditions? Now, this was not a, we did not do this in a way that was personally identifiable. So I think we have confidence that people are answering uh, accurately. And you can see that we have a number of staff that have one or more of these risk conditions. And I don't, I don't think this is uh, that out of uh, kilter with where the general population is. So these data are probably pretty indicative of where, where our staff are with these risk conditions. That's something we need to think about. And then we also asked the question, uh, if, if you were required to wear a mask and did appropriate cleaning standards are maintained, how comfortable are you returning work physically? You can see the distribution there, and it ranges from very comfortable to very uncomfortable. And then uh, we did ask this question, understanding the district has taken specific measures uh, in the workplace uh, to, to, to allow you to come back physically. Uh, you know, if you were to come back at a normal start, start date, what would your likely response be to coming back to work physically? And you can see that... Uh, for the certified staff, about 14%, they come back with confidence. 73%, uh, they'd return with some concerns. Uh, I can tell you, I filled this survey out, and I've, uh, I'll tell you, I, I marked that one because I don't think it's unreasonable to have concerns. I mean, look at what we've done tonight. See, we can interact with each other. We have to be smart. <laughs> we have to do the risk mitigation. And then there are others who felt very strongly that, that uh, they would explore uh, options for leave. And in some cases, uh, folks said they would seriously consider resigning or retirement. So I think this data give us a really good indicator of where our staff are and how they feel right now about coming back into a work environment. And I have to say, I, I, you hear this from lots of employers, don't you? I don't think this is unusual. I think this is somewhat normative and, in fact, healthy. <laughs> because we need to treat this, this virus with respect and do what's smart 
and follow the science. And that's exactly what we've done as we've started to get into our learning options. And so here's what we've done. We have set up learning options for elementary and learning options for secondary. Let me go through the elementary options first. If we were to do in-person learning, it would have certain qualities. First of all, of course, you're in your home school. Um, you would select, we, when we send out this next round of surveys, you would say, I want this option. I want, in, I want the option of in-person learning. And then exactly what we do in that model depends on those gating criteria we were talking about. If the data are such in the county that we need to engage everybody in remote learning, that is what we will do. Even if you're in an in-class model, everybody would be remote. But as those data begin to get better and they get to that threshold where now we can begin to, uh, with masks and social distancing, begin to bring uh, students in, we can create a hybrid model. And that hybrid model has certain elements to it. You'll go to school two days a week, you'll be remote three days a week. We'd have much smaller class sizes. We build an image for you. See this blue line? That's the size of a classroom. Now realize in a classroom, you're going to have uh, shelves, you're going to have things around the perimeter of that, right? You can, you can do this, I won't count because it's to my back, but you can just start to count chairs. Because what you do in a hybrid model is you put desks six feet apart, everybody's wearing masks. That, that has a lot of safety to it because they say you have to social distance six feet apart. But if a student were to pull down a mask, temporarily or something, that six feet gives you a level of safety. It's a level of risk mitigation that fits within the standard that's been provided to us. So that's the hybrid model. Um, and I'll go into that in a, a little bit more in a second. And then we have on-site learning. And of course, that's where everybody's finally able to come back in, which is, of course, what all of us want eventually to get to. Now, uh, in the hybrid model, and I'm going to really focus on this, when we're in the hybrid model, uh, the way that you know when you attend school is based on the alphabet. So anyone in, who has a last name of A through L will attend on Monday and Tuesday. Everyone else attends on Wednesday and Thursday. And then you organize instruction around those attendance days. I'm not going to go into all the details of this. You can read it. And later on, you can ask questions from the learning team uh, about the details of this model. But that will take some real design work on the part of our teachers, right? I mean, remotes, the, each model has its own unique uh, opportunities and challenges. So in a hybrid model, you've got to plan instruction for the day, but then the, you also need to have activities for the kids who are working at home. So that's basically the hybrid model at elementary. Um, one thing to note before I go into the secondary model is in, in remote learning last year, we didn't necessarily, we, we worked on setting schedules, but it was difficult. We, uh, we worked on uh, uh, making sure that teachers and kids were regularly interacting and, and we were successful in some cases, not as successful in others. We didn't give grades. This is, this is, a, this is a completely different model for this year. We'll have grades, we'll have assessments, they'll have attendance. 
Because one of the things that you have to do in both the remote learning model and in the hybrid model is you have to record hours that you're working at home. And we're accountable for students to be engaged in schoolwork during those hours. That is a requirement of the state. And they even have a, a model form that we need to use. That data will then be subject to audit. So this looks very different than last spring. Much more highly structured and much more focused on what we think about as being more typical learning. The secondary model is, um, is almost identical to that with a few nuances, and I'll go, to, I'll go through that in a second. Now, if you're in the pre-K option, for uh, pre-K-6 option for remote learning, here's what you do. You select remote learning, and you'll get assigned to a remote learning teacher, and you'll remain in that class for the semester. If you choose in class, it's for the semester. If you choose remote only, it's for the semester. Because we have to staff all of these. That's going to take some work. And staffing these is, is going to be a challenge, and we know that. But you stay in there for the entire semester. Uh, while the students' home school remains there, there uh, remains intact, when you enroll in the remote learning program, although you remain a student in that school, you are assigned to a program, which means you will not necessarily, and in fact probably won't, have a teacher from that school. We are going to have to hire internally, working from our existing staff. We're going to have to hire teachers to teach these remote classes as part of this program. We are going to be hiring a principal to run the remote learning program. And so students will sign up. Teachers will be identified to teach in that program. And it will be kind of its own school. I still keep my identity with my home school. I can still participate in PTA. I still have a school where I belong. But for the purposes of instruction, I go into a program that is, that is an online remote learning experience. And students will not attend in person at any point during the semester. All instruction will be uh, remote. And then you can see some of the qualities that we have here. Um, again, your game grades, atten uh, attendance will be taken, assessments will be given, and so on. Um, you can look at that slide and it gives you a little bit more information. Again, students are going to have to log the 390 minutes that they're involved in instruction every week. Okay, now the secondary model, I'm not going to spend as much time on this. It is, it is essentially the same for in-person and remote. There are a few nuances of difference. Um, one of those is that um, when you sign up, well, let me just focus on the, on the in-person model first. You're, you will have, if you're going on, uh, on Monday and Tuesday, you'll sort of have certain classes. And, of course, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, you'll have certain classes. But you can see under that hybrid model that on Monday and Wednesdays, Classes uh, one through four will be taught, plus they'll have seminar or mascot time. And on Tuesday and Thursday, classes five through seven will be taught. So in other words, you're going to get all your classes over those two days. And then they repeat it 
the following two days and you're, you're given uh, work to do at home on the days when you're working remotely. And then um, I want to go into the secondary remote learning. Again, substantively the same. There is, there is some nuance here and that is we cannot guarantee that in the remote learning selection that we can necessarily offer every class that you could get in in-class instruction. Remember, you're signing up for your own program. We'll offer as many classes as we can, but we're not going to make the promise that we can offer everything that you will want. So that's going to be a decision that, uh, that parents will have to make, and we'll, we'll work with parents as best we can to explain that. Now, having said it, We've designed the options, but we haven't designed all the coursework yet. We haven't hired all the teachers, right? So there's still work to be done on this model. Again, the learning team can talk about that in more detail with any questions you might have. And then very importantly on special education, um, that has its own unique opportunities. And so we're going to have to really work hard with uh, individual students and families to do the very best we can to meet the needs of their students, whether they're working remotely or whether they are in class. So that's the big picture overview of the learning model. There's lots of detail in the planning document, but that kind of gives you a big picture idea of what's happening. Now, on operations and planning, um, I'm going to do a very high-level overview of each of these slides because that team's going to spend a little bit more detail with you. Uh, on each of their slides. Shelby will come up and talk more about health and safety when that happens. On facilities, just know that we're doing a lot of cleaning and sanitizing strategies. We've also, we're also working on improving air quality and ventilation. Uh, water quality is another important factor when you're dealing with COVID-19, so we have strategies for that. We'll put signage in the schools, reminding people, wear masks, you know, have these right behaviors that help keep everybody healthy. Uh, we also have a group that's working on extracurricular and co-curricular activities. We really are waiting on guidance from Keisha. I know everybody wants to know what's going to happen in the fall. Are we going to have sports? The answer is, we'll tell you as soon as we know. <laughs> that hasn't been determined statewide, and we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, for summer activities, we've, we've had and will continue to have outdoor safety measures in place. We'll have weight room protocols. Performing arts guidelines, you know, that's a big deal. Band, orchestra, choir. Uh, there's special uh, precautions that have to be taken around those, and we'll be working on guidelines for that. Those have been developed. We'll be implementing them. Transportation. You know, transportation is a bit of a challenge, right? You not only have sanitation that you have to take care of in terms of cleaning, uh, but you also have to arrange kids in seats to where they're uh, appropriately distanced. And so uh, we're working closely with our transportation company to make sure that we're ready to roll, no pun intended, when it comes time to uh, start uh, picking up students for school. Food services, one of the biggest challenges that districts across the country are going to face is how do we do lunch? Uh, there's been suggestions to do lunch in classrooms. That has its own unique set of challenges. Uh, cafeterias aren't big enough to handle all students in a, in a socially distanced, safe way. 
And so what you're starting to see is, is reflected in our plan, which is longer lunch periods. Fewer children coming in, longer lunch periods. Uh, modification of serving stations. And uh, also, when possible, eating outside the cafeteria and flex spaces that are identified for that purpose. And then, as you know, we've had a lot of work going on with information and, and communications technology. We've adopted Canvas to make sure that we have one platform where all learning can take place when we're in a remote mode or if you're in, in class and you're using Canvas as a connecting point for homework, assessments, curriculum, or so on. And then um, we also have been working on improved data services. We, we've been refreshing equipment. So we've covered a lot of that in the past, but just know we're working hard to make sure our technology is up up to snuff and ready to go when uh, when learning starts. Okay, I did that in about 40 minutes, which was not super fast, but at least I got the overview done. Now what I'm going to do is I'm gonna have uh, Dr. Michelle Hubbard, who's been overseeing the learning team, come up. And uh, she will she and members of her team will respond to questions that you will have about learning. And uh, I just wanna emphasize again, They've been working nonstop. And when I say nonstop, I mean nonstop. There hasn't been breaks since March. People have just been cranking out work to just get to a point where we can have this presentation tonight. So I want to thank them and everyone else that's presenting tonight for their work. Michelle? Thank you, Dr. Fulton. I would like to um, just real quickly reiterate that we have a great team standing here with me tonight, but there's also been an amazing team behind the scenes, uh, teachers, kids, social workers, counselors, uh, administrators that have worked on this plan, those plans, those documents that you see for both elementary, middle, and high. We had three different teams working on those as well as we had a, a remote team that looks specifically at remote. Kevin Hansford led that up with Pam being the elementary, uh, Pam Lewis, and then Dr. Darren Dennis for the middle school and Dr. Joe Gilhouse for the high school. But again, with amazing support from people that um, work in our buildings every single day. So I just want to say a special thanks to those teams that have put that work together. And at this time, we are available for questions for you. I want to I wanna reiter reiterate a couple things that Dr. Fulton said. If parents are going to be choosing option one or two, they would be choosing it for a semester. And then I want to reiterate the fact that regardless of the learning plan that you are in, the the 390 minutes a day is still a requirement um, through KSDE in the learning plan. And then the last thing is I want to reiterate the fact that um, the state's plan as well as our plan has significantly different expectations starting for the fall than we had last spring. And I think that's extremely important um, for all of those for all plans to understand that the expectations and what it looks like is going to be very different moving forward. So with that, we are ready for your questions. Okay, so um, what I would like to do if possible is to have each board member have one question and we'll move through and then move back. And then that way we each get a chance to ask instead of like sitting with one of us because I actually think we all have a significant number of questions but I'm concerned that we'll not have enough time for all of us. Um, so I guess what I'll do at this point right now is uh, start with Ms. Borgman at that end of the table if you want to shoot a question and then maybe have one follow-up and then we'll just go around. 
next to Reverend Guy. Thanks. You bet. Thank you. And before we get started, do we want to just address briefly what the district's plan is and when that will be announced for when school, when we will make decisions about when school will start? I was actually going to have Dr. Fulton speak to that after we were done with this. But okay. Do we want to wait then or I um, think a lot of people so are... It's up to you. I, I mean, I guess, you know, I, yeah, that, that's fine. I was just thinking we would get to this since we were on it, but um, I'm sure there's people watching at home that will continue to stay engaged and following yeah. the rest of the presentation after they get that information. So go ahead, Dr. Bolton. Yeah, just very briefly, uh, as we know, the, uh, the governor's plan to start school after Labor Day what did, not, uh, did not pass the state board. However, we plan to start after Labor Day. And we are in the process of updating our calendar to reflect that. Our goal is to bring that calendar to you at Monday's board meeting on the 27th. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail because we still have uh, work to do on that calendar. But I will tell you, we'll start after Labor Day. Could be the 9th, could be the 8th. That's what we have to decide. But, but I think people need to know that school is going to start after Labor Day. And when you say school will start, does it mean school will start for, will teachers go before Labor Day? School will start, school will start for students after Labor Day. Now, we always bring in staff before school starts. So, and, and in the governor's plan, actually, it, it accommodates this. You know, she, she talks specifically about school starting after Labor Day, but staff could come in earlier. And so that's, that's our calendar will reflect that change. Yeah, so this is for students starting after Labor Day. Staff will start before Labor Day. Thank you. Dr. Fulton, can I add in regards to the calendar that we had already announced earlier, we did an adjustment to the calendar, if you all remember a month or so ago, that we already adjusted to have additional pre-service also to plan accordingly. And we plan to keep that in place. Thanks. Well, I apologize for jumping the gun. Thank you for answering it. I know everyone still has to watch the rest of the meeting. <laughs> well, we haven't lost anyone in the room, probably because they're all staff. But <laughs> you can watch the the number of people watching on YouTube click down right now. Oh, Thank you. Right. You're fine. Yes. Go ahead, Jamie. So, um, when kids, first of all, I do think there are some things that need to be clarified. Um, I, I printed off a number of the emails that I received from parents and I just want to tell parents thank you so much for reaching out to us with questions, concerns, opinions and so a lot of my questions will be from parents and the emails that I received. And one of the questions that I um, got and I know that we've addressed this in the past as a board but I think it's really worth repeating because I'm not sure that the message is um, out there is there are a lot of questions about connectivity issues. And so I think maybe taking a second <clears throat> to explain Canvas, that might help parents make a more informed decision about what they decide to do in the fall <clears throat> with our new learning platform. So Dr. Fulton, if you wouldn't mind taking a second or Dr. Hubbard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna direct all your questions to the team. Wonderful. So I'm going to give this the best shot that I can. Dan Grumman is the lead on that, and Dan is not with us tonight. But I, I think I can, be with the help of maybe of Dr. Dennis. So Canvas is a learning management system. And basically what that means is as, as a student 
or a teacher or as a parent, when I log on, I will see all of my courses. So I'm going to talk as a student right now. So when I log on, I'm going to see, as a high school student, I'm going to see English 9, I'm going to see Algebra 2, I'm going to see U.S. History, so or whatever my courses are, right? I'm going to see every one of those on one platform. So currently, we've had people will log into my Google Classroom or log into Schoology or log into here. So now that will all be housed in one place. My assignments will be there. My grades will be there. Same as a parent. When I log on as a parent, I will see it. It's called a dashboard. And I will see all of my kids' um, courses. I'll be able to click the coursework. I'll be able to see assignments. That are, there's calendar aspects. So it'll tell me all the uh, assignments for the due dates for assignments. It will tell me what those assignments are. Uh, we're still working on the logistics of how much we put in there initially because there's going to be a learning curve for teachers. So we're working on that professional learning now. Um, there is sort of what we're calling a blueprint. So, it, I mean, it, you're going to see similar things in similar courses. It's not like it's going to be all over the board. And we did that purposefully so that it, it's it, it's a common look, if you will. Um, Darren, Christy Ziegler, anybody want to add to what I may have? And I think does that help? Yeah, it does. And this will be my follow-up question, and then I'll move on to. Reverend now I want to be clear in regards to connectivity. Canvas doesn't fix the abil my ability to log on to the internet. So when you said connectivity, VPN. and Canvas together are not the same. Right. Okay. All right. So the VPN issues that so many of us were experiencing in the spring with remote learning. We are not going to have that same headache in the fall if we choose a hybrid or remote option. So I'm going to have to get a different person to talk to about sure. VPN. And actually, um, actually, you know, it's a great question. One of the things we'll do is when we get to operations, we're going to have a section there just on technology. So if you have, if you have any technology questions, you might want to save those, and then Drew will. Okay, sounds good. Me. I just think yeah. that's a critical factor in parents making their decision about whether they want, they do remote learning sure. or, you know, how they make their decision if, I mean, people were very frustrated. So I think we've made a lot of great well, the, strides. Yeah, and the VPN issue we've addressed by going yeah. to a different approach, yep. a web-based approach, a cloud-based approach. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of, uh, of course, we can't fix the connectivity that they... It's just like on the, probably the connectivity issues we all had. Yes. Then <laughs> that, I misspoke. It was more the VPN issues. Yeah, the, VP, the all... VPN issue has been addressed. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Hubbard. You Great bet. job to everybody here. Thank you. Um, so obviously parents are concerned um, if the parents have to work outside the home and what to do with kids. So I just want to clarify, make sure that people understand it was in small print. Um, that siblings will, if they do the hybrid, the siblings will all go to classes on the same days of the week and then they'll be home for the remote learning. Even if their last names are different and you'll use the last name of the oldest child or something. Um, so parents who are worried about younger kids maybe needing an older sibling at home to keep an eye on them, um, the, the siblings will go together the same days as, as am I reading that correctly? You are. So that's a pre-K-12 will be assigning by the oldest student in the, the oldest school-age student in the family would be assigned. Right now we have an A to L and M to Z. 
uh, that maybe need to be adjusted just a little bit based on how many students go into remote. So it could adjust by a couple of um, letters, but generally speaking, uh, we'll split it in half with the first half going here, second half going there. Yes. Okay. That's my question. I think I'll, I'll add to that same line of question, and that has to do with the choices that are going to be made depending on the environment. Um, is it K all the way through 12 that will have that criteria that Dr. Fulton said that said once you made a selection, that's your selection all semester? So K through 12, or does it vary depending on what level you're at? Pre-K 12, once you make the decision for the semester, you stay for the semester. And is that for all three columns, meaning remote, hybrid, and on-site learning? No, I'm going to choose as a parent either option one, and I might move through all three modes depending on where the county is. So if I choose in person, I could be in person, I could be hybrid, or I could be remote. All right? Or I'm going to choose remote. Okay. But if I choose option one, I'll only be in one of those three at a time. We won't have some kids in person, some hybrid, some remote. All kids in option one will be in one of those three modes, depending on the gating criteria from the county. So, so to clarify for myself, said a different way, the two choices are um, remote the whole semester or the various options that we will decide as a district team, depending on the conditions and the environment within. The yes, thank you for situation. clarifying, yes. Okay, so once they uh, go with that, it could work very well be that they too would be at remote, and then depending on conditions and decisions, then we would move to a hybrid model, and then if conditions, conditions improve, then we go to on-site. That is correct. Thank you. I'm gonna continue along this vein. So this is where, if my understanding is correct, where the gating criteria and the science would help that decision-making process. So. If I'm a teacher or a parent in that option one mode, in-person learning, it would be hopefully this gating criteria that would be, so we could all as a community see where, our, where we're at in terms of positivity rate or hospitalization or those kinds of factors. And we would know, okay, we're in a hybrid learning mode. So by picking option one, I need to be comfortable knowing that the, the instructional strategy will shift as the, the virus um, is scientifically, we are looking at these different criteria and where those are as a community. So I as a parent or would need to be comfortable and students shifting through any of these three modes. It might likely be more hybrid or remote at best for a while. Well, we don't know. I guess we don't know what condition our community will be in. The, the, to answer your question, I think, yes, the criteria would determine which of the three, and we would be using the criteria based on the science from the health department. Okay. Dr. Fulton, do you want to add to that? Um, I will add to it that 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 is really important for parents to understand because we don't control the wind. Uh, the virus kind of dictates that. But... The way in which uh, those decisions typically are made is you're working usually with 14-day windows. So is it something where one day you're in remote and then you know things get better and so five days later you're in a different mode? I mean, there's going to be a window of time 
during which you see the conditions getting better or worse and you can anticipate that you're going to have to make a shift. And we would try, and, and we would have the ability to smooth that out too. Just because you can go, say, from remote to hybrid doesn't mean that you have to make that shift after that 14-day window. You can extend it if you want. And that would, like if you're near a break, for example, you may not want to make that shift right away. You may want to just stay in the mode that you're in for a few more days. It's fine. And those, were, those are the kinds of decisions we'll have to make. Thank you. I, I was remiss in not taking the opportunity to personally thank each and every one of you before the meeting started in the room and those of you who are not here that helped prepare and create all these options for our community. I, I can't even imagine the number of scenarios and situations and pieces of data that you all work through day in day So thank you very much. Um, I want to ditto the thanks. Um, I know most everyone on the board knows and probably everybody in this room knows I have a high needs medical at risk child and um, I really appreciate the dedication and the concern of all the professionals in this room to keep all of our kiddos safe and to keep our staff safe. Um, we know our mission is to educate but that is clearly the priority is keeping everybody safe and I know you guys have been working really hard on that. And just as a mom, I want you to know I appreciate the fact that I have options when I think about what school looks like for him when we come back and that all the needs of all our kids are being weighed seriously. So I'm going to start with that before I start all of the hammering of the questions. Um, I think one of the things that um, people are really concerned about having certainty, and I don't think that anyone is going to get certainty with this unless they choose the online model from the beginning. That's the only way to know what your child's semester is going to look like because we will be in flux for the entirety of the semester based off of what infection rates are doing. And Dr. Fulton has said, you know, with a gating criteria and what that gating criteria looks like, but I want to be very clear that if we were making this decision today, we would be online completely. And so right now, the choice for our community is what decisions do we want to make as a community to create an opportunity to see kiddos in person and to see how they're doing. Um, I think DCF rates of abuse reporting has gone down by anywhere between 25 and 30 percent across the state. Um, and we're all pretty certain that the actual rate of abuse has not gone down. It's just that there are not mandated reporters putting eyes on kids in order to reach out to the appropriate authorities to report the abuse. So there are very important considerations on both sides of the equation and threading the needle so that we can meet all of those needs is, is pretty important. So having said all of that, I know you said we were working with the county, Dr. Fulton, on what happens if there is an infection in a building or we have a positive situation. And if we could get any more detail on that, I think that's primary in people's consideration for how they weigh their own risk mitigation strategy. I think that's something that uh, when we get to operations, Shelby can probably talk to that a little bit more. Perfect. Thank you. In terms of current practice. Yeah. With all that's my question, and I'll move on to Ms. Goodburn. Um, I just 
I, I guess I would want a little bit more clarification on how quickly we could move between these modes. Like, I'm, I'm thinking parents out there might be like, are they gonna, is it gonna be like a Friday to a Monday or we're talking the 14 days? I mean, we would have a, a, a time for parents to be able to plan because there's a big difference between sending your kid to school versus then having the kid, the children, the student home for two to three days a week or home five days a week and they'll have to be able to plan for that. So what do you guys think? I mean, how much time are we gonna be able to give or what, what is the turnaround time between the modes? And I know you probably can't answer that because it just sort of depends on the infection rate too. If it just spikes incredibly high, I don't know. So what do you? So thinking? I think that a lot of that we're, we're hopeful that the gating criteria from the county is gonna help us with. Um, I will also tell you that, and most people that work with me know this about me, but I have five of my own kids. And I think back at the time when I had five kids at Ray Marsh and if Miss Lewis at the time would have called and said, uh, it's Friday and we're going to school on our, you know, we're, we're going to be remote on Monday. As a working mom, I would have been scrambling. So I always, in our planning, and, and I know we have a lot of parents that are on these planning teams that are in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Um, you know, some of us was really young kids and others not so much anymore. But um, we always say we have to plan with parents in mind. I mean, that was really back to Laura's question, Reverend Guy's question about the alphabet. I mean, that was really intentional planning for families to ensure that all the kids were on the same schedule because we didn't want high school kids doing one thing, middle doing one, and elementary for those families that are crossing those grade levels. So I, I would just say that in all of our planning, we really try to think about the family. We really try to think about the burden on working parents. We really try to think about the burden for our, our child care providers in our communities, whether it's JCPRD, YCARE, Home Cares, all of those different agencies that are, I mean, let, let's be honest. We're talking about school right now, but this is a community-wide problem. We all have to work together as much as possible. You know, the health department working with us regularly. So. Um, I, I would hope that the gating criteria would give at, at minimum a week and potentially that entire two-week period to give people time to plan accordingly. You know, in our, in our conversations with, uh, with health officials, uh, that's, that 14-day that window is uh, something that comes up a lot. So I anticipate we'll have at least a 14-day window to work with. But remember, that can be extended. That's a minimum. If we feel we need to extend the window to give people more time, we have the ability to, to, to plan. We have the ability to do that. So that, that helps. But yeah, go turn flipping a switch from Monday or, or from Friday to Monday is not reasonable. People aren't going to be able to move that quickly. And I would also add for our teachers, we'll have to be, it, it won't be, you know, prepping for an online course and prepping for a hybrid course are very different, so it won't be with a switch, but it will need to provide. So I, it wouldn't be as quick as a Monday to a Friday to a Monday. We couldn't ask teachers to turn around that quickly um, anyway, because it will take some adjustment to go back into a classroom if you're going hybrid from, from online. So we'll have to be very mindful of that in planning as well to slow it, to give teachers opportunities to change their prep to a new learning model spoke to the community and I think that's going to be huge with supporting students in the different models. Um, in the plan we talk a lot about utilizing 
Thank you. Caring for kids, partnerships, and you know, can they have some sites to where they can support students what they're learning and can we partner with with those community partnerships? And you know, as a parent you're looking at and, and you know you're gonna get to maybe know your neighbor a little better because you might be supporting each other with the learning and supporting each other's students within that. Um, or a high school student that's willing to be that's on your same schedule that can also be willing to to be there to support um, as well. So we're, we're really going to have to be problem solvers and supporters and really in the community working together. I can see this being where PTAs are able to really support families and work together and um, you know develop those partnerships um, within the communities. I, I just want to echo all of the things. I feel like we got handed some serious lemons as a community. I, a month ago I was watching these numbers and thinking Okay, like this, I could see this happening. I could see something like in-person instruction happening. And obviously we are in a totally different situation now, which I think speaks in part to just how quickly this virus can change and move. And we have seven weeks to see what happens with it, which I'm really grateful for. Um, so I know all of you were given like a very impossible task of balancing health and safety with learning and education and doing it in a really short period of time. And I imagine every one of you had a hand in thinking about what all of this means for your work. So I'm incredibly grateful. I'm sure we haven't thread this needle perfectly, but I feel like we've um, threaded as best as we can and put students as much at the forefront. So thank you very, very much. Um, my question, this feels a little bit like a mom question than a school board member question, but I'm curious about the hybrid model and what that actually looks like from the perspective of students and teachers if they are on the sort of option one that is aiming for in-person instruction at some point, permitting low virus trends. Um, the kids who are home, when they're home and not in school on their off days, what does that look like for them? Um, the team worked really hard on that, the instructional uh, piece of the elementary team, and I know um, this, the middle school and high school team as well. But what that would look like is when you're on site, you have that direct instruction. Um, and then on the days that you are not on site, that's going to look a little bit more like it would almost in a rotation model within the classroom. For example, when we do direct instruction with math, then um, students might work through the Zern online platform resource. And so instead of doing that in the classroom on site, they would be doing that in their alternate day. And the teacher will be able to monitor their progress. Um, they know it's a district resource that's tied to the instruction they, they provided around priority standards. Um, take reading, students might um, read the story um, when they're off site, and then they would do a discussion board through Connect Ed with our wonders resources. But then when it's actually on site, the teacher may be providing that direct instruction um, around priority standards with whatever that concept is or doing your uh, phonics routines. And that doesn't mean that that can't happen when they're off-site if, if uh, teachers want to post videos for them to preview um, or if they want to allow students to remote in for those re phonics routines every single day. That's another option that can happen. But we'll definitely need to work with our staff. And, and you know, our, I'm going to tell you, we have talented teachers. And so when they work together and start working, sorry, this keeps sliding down. I don't normally talk this much with a mask on. Um, everybody's probably happy about that. Um, so, you know, our teachers will pull together and determine what does that look like at our grade level. And we'll also be working with our teachers across feeder patterns so that they can share ideas with each other. Um, we had an innovation specialist and instructional team put together a sample uh, schedule of what that could look like to just kind of get teachers thinking. But um, you know, they're talented; they'll they'll get that schedule figured out and and make it meaningful learning. 
And will our 390-minute log still apply on the? On they do. 390 applies to every That's everything they have. <laughs> One thing that I would add, though, in addition to what Ms. Lewis said, and I, and this applies for elementary, middle, and high. The state plan and our plan does require daily FaceTime with an adult in the school. And so, um, hypothetically, if I'm doing direct instruction for um, mathematics at the sixth grade level and I, you all are my group here and they're my group at home, I could do a WebEx and do the direct instruction for everybody. That is an option if that's something that's in my... Um, bag of tricks, if you will, as a teacher. And so that is still an option too. Um, there's so many options with online learning with kids here and kids there. It could also be um, a para that might pull six kids that are at home while, while I'm doing this direct instruction. Um, a, a para might assist me and have six kids that needed a little additional support that are sitting at home to be on WebEx at the same time. So I think it's endless possibilities at all three levels. Darren. The thing I would add um, to what's been said, we have, uh, with kids only in school two days a week, there's a limited amount of time that a teacher would have face-to-face -face with kids. And so they're really going to focus on those priority standards as that, that's really where the, the effort and the emphasis is going to be, as defined by our proficiency scales, but um, really developing and, and measuring skill growth and uh, competency in those areas. Shoot back over to Jamie. Okay. Um, can you talk about kiddos with IEPs and what learning looks like for them during this time? <laughs> Absolutely. And so <clears throat> special education, like Dr. Hubbard mentioned early on, we also, not only did we have um, special education representation, amongst all of these plans. We had specialized members working on other plans for our uh, maybe more intense need students who um, require specialized programs or things of that nature. And so with the nature of this program, um, we have an obligation still to provide those services. Um, and again, the learning environment will look very differently this fall as it did in the spring. And so that higher level of um, accountability, the resources that we have now for staff with the Canvas platform. Um, we are also working to ensure paraeducators have access to devices. So as Dr. Hubbard mentioned as an example, we could um, do a, a breakout group where a paraeducator is providing a small group instruction just virtually um, as opposed to maybe an on-site aspect. One of the questions that I have received regularly, and I'm sure some of you have received this as well, is the concern about um, this forcing a segregation aspect with special education, and that is not the intent at all. In fact, one of the things that we have an obligation to do and continue is ensuring that we're providing services across the different learning environments. And so we will just work to ensure that we're doing that in a, the safest way possible. And so utilizing that PPE equipment, um, working with students and families to devise plans that would be applicable to, to those individual needs. Um, one of the unique aspects of special education, well, we, we do a lot of individualized instruction as a whole of a district. Each of our student plans are individualized education plans, and so there will be some nuances to each of those um, types of plans for their individual needs. Does that 
answer your question? And my follow-up question mm -hmm. is, what other questions should we be asking you tonight about <laughs> kiddos with IEPs? Sure. And so, you know, I think um, there are there are lots of questions um, in regards to. We have students who go out into the community. We have staff who go out into the community for services. Um, we don't have all of the answers to those things at this moment in time. And those are going to be probably very fluid answers pending on um, where we are as a community in our accessibility to those, um, those options. And so um, I do, I, what I can tell you is that <clears throat> we are working to ensure um, that our staff have PPE equipment. We are also working to explore um, types of items that we can also provide for students who maybe have some difficulty tolerating a mask. Um, we know that that is um, something that is out there and so we are working on ways to be able to remedy that, whether it's increasing separation, um, if possible, um, face shields, um, in lieu of the mask because of the, the restriction is just a little bit different. So again, um, probably more questions than answers, but um, we have a lot of um, teachers who have been reaching out and wanting to create videos to help parents um, maybe understand delivery of service a little bit differently. And so we have a lot of kind of things um, going on behind the scenes in order to help be better prepared. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to take a minute to thank all of you as well and we had a board retreat this afternoon and we took a photo of all of us in the room of course wearing our masks and I commented afterwards that it looked like we were kind of angry because of course you, we were all smiling for the photo and you couldn't see it so I just want to let you know I'm smiling under this mask I'm listening very intently um, so I know sometimes you can't see that I'm responding very positively uh, to what I'm hearing you say because it's obvious that you have thought through so many details. And so when I was reading through the draft of the plan, um, one of the things that I really appreciated, I think especially in the elementary level, there's time for the morning meeting, morning check-in, for those important social-emotional skills. And we know lots of kids have been struggling with the isolation, um, being separated from friends, being separated from their beloved teachers. And so I just want to say I'm so appreciative that you gave a lot of thought to that and to having teachers check in with the kids and asking them how they're doing, I think is so important. Um, and then my question is, I also noticed you gave a lot of thought to how to do specials, uh, especially in the elementary. And so if you would just speak to that because that tends to be the thing, you know, people think, oh, that can go by the wayside. But art and music and PE are important for the development of children, too. So if families are doing the online or the hybrid, how are those students going to be exposed to the specials? That's <laughs> uh, So again, the specifics of the what the actual class itself looks like will really um, be developed early on in the year in these extra pre-service days when we allow our teacher teams to get together and actually put um, put those plans together and, and what can that look like for students whether we're in an online room or uh, we're remote or hybrid. Um, what we spend a lot of time on and, and, and Pam is um, always very good at calling caution which I appreciate um, to safety is the cross-grouping of students and creating a schedule that allows for the special teacher to have enough time, um, I, I hesitate to say enough, but as much time 
as we can offer for them to be able to transition between classes. If you if you're familiar with an elementary schedule right now, they don't have any. They kids show up one after the other, and so trying to build in opportunities for them to have some opportunity to set up and 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 clean equipment, but then also to create a schedule that does not. Uh, that keeps a cohort intact and reduces cross-contamination. So those were a lot of the big conversations that I was a part of. And as I said, the the art of the teaching there, we have masterful teachers. I mean, you, you've met them, you, you know them. They will come up with wonderful plans um, that will continue to honor the arts and, and those things. And so I, I feel very confident about that. Pam, would you add anything else about um, regarding schedules? I would add that we also talked a lot about whether um, the comfort level of the teacher and whether they chose to go to the classroom or whether they chose to transition students uh, to their location and, and really trying to plan for that when possible to have classes outdoors. And so just to be thinking a little differently about how we would do the instruction, maybe the materials we would utilize um, so that we didn't have um, all the students using, you know, um, the pastels because we don't want to have to clean as often and so just kind of looking at that that's one reason why it's set up for a monday tuesday rotation of the same students um, then we also talked i don't think this has been discussed about our specials teachers would rotate um, to a different for example a fourth grade they'd have a different fourth grade class every day and so we have uh, discussed and put in the plan and we took a lot of advice from nurse shelby um, had follow-up questions with her to where the specials teacher would have the same fourth grade for one or two weeks and work through the standards and teaching, for example, in art, and then they would have the next class of fourth graders for one to two weeks. I don't know that we've determined which. Um, and so that way they're not having different exposure to classes every single day. But a lot of time went into thinking of cohort groups and exposure, and of course, Nurse Shelby gives a lot of advice with that too. Thank you. Just a, a follow-up. So if, if elementary children are doing remote learning, what kind of access might they have to specials? What kind of learning? How would that work? Um, in the instructional plan, it has it set up in the schedule that you would have your um, direct instruction. And I believe it's listed as 25 minutes of direct instruction and then 25 minutes of guided and independent practice that would be... Um, you know, whether it be the project they were working on at home, um, whatever it might be. Maybe um, I'm thinking if I'm um, an art teacher, I might then have a link to where they're going to do a virtual field trip, something like that that ties in with it. So that's how that is laid out in the schedule. And again, um, this is from the planning team, and we know that when we bring those art teachers together, or you know, the librarians have worked a lot as well, um, and, and other areas, that they will also enhance that even more. My question has to do with staffing. Um, I don't know if that's something we're talking about now also. I'll pose it, you can decide. And that is that uh, um, I wondered what we learned during the spring semester regarding uh, substitute teaching. Um, you know, there, we have a contract with Kelly Services. I was wondering how engaged we are with Kelly Services to prepare for this new environment in the fall. Our families and our teachers' families will continue to have a lot of unknowns, and so I was wondering about the relationship we have with Kelly Services. What did we learn in the spring so that we're ready to have either in in classroom and or remote substitutes? How, I don't know if that's a question for now or later. No, we we can do that now, Dr. Sumner. Do you want to address that one or? 
So the, the short answer is that we've maintained great connection with Kelly throughout, through the spring, during these planning months, and we, Mike and I were on a call with them yesterday? Yesterday, yesterday uh, for several hours. And the key remains this, to generate a large enough pool of substitute candidates to fill vacancies, whether they're in-person, hybrid, or remote. And Kelly assures us that their recruiting efforts right now uh, continue to be very strong, and they anticipate a pool as large, if not larger, for the coming school year than we ended the spring with. <laughs> Recognizing the work that's been done by the group behind us to create these different delivery models, Kelly has also been in tune with those plans in that they are going to provide specific training to subs who identify themselves as willing to teach remotely. If a remote teacher needs a substitute, one will be provided, and Kelly will be providing uh, technical coordination and training for them uh, on delivering curriculum in that manner. We're also going to need to partner with our uh, information technology team to make sure that there is a location for those substitutes to access the equipment they need to be effective in that environment. So that's all part of the plan. We're also trying to minimize uh, exposure as we are across the plan. One of the uh, possible solutions we brainstormed with Kelly yesterday was pre-selecting a small group of substitutes for each building. Um, we can look at data from last year and say Apache Elementary averaged uh, four substitutes a day throughout the school year. And to be a little more conservative, we may identify three substitutes who will be assigned to Apache every day to provide coverage for what we know will be an average of that many staff members gone. And it will be those subs all the time. Now, if we need additional, we would bring more in. But if we can minimize the number of different bodies coming in and out of the school building, we think we provide a, a better, stronger, safer service for everybody involved. So are there more specific questions maybe that I haven't touched on? Mike, anything I'm leaving out? Just to maybe re reiterate some of the precautions that they're taking too. Uh, they've gone through specific training with their current subs around COVID-19, just like we're doing with, with our uh, new staff coming in. Uh, they're also um, p uh, potentially implementing an, uh, an, an application where they can kind of assess themselves as to whether or not they're at risk, and that way they would know to exclude themselves. And then the other piece, which we really were uh, encouraged about, was the Canvas training. They're taking all of their um, uh, substitutes through, through Canvas training as well. So we felt good about the call, um, and we're going to have ongoing conversations with them. And of course, any substitute that enters one of our facilities will be held to the same health and safety. I'm sorry. Any, any substitute that enters one of our facilities will be held to the same safety standards and protocol than any other staff member is. Kelly has been honest and told us what they anticipate is probably a greater number of uh, late uh, cancellations because people wake up, they don't feel well, they don't want to risk it, they don't want to risk anybody else's safety, so we have to put some procedures in place to be prepared for those. We know that the more time we have to fill a sub vacancy, uh, the greater our fill rates are. If we have at least 24 hours, we know our fill rates are 100%. But if you call at 6 a.m., we know those fill rates drop you know, quickly to 92%. Uh, and so we need to redouble our efforts to tell staff, if you're feeling poorly the day before and you worry that this may linger, better to call for a sub the day before and cancel the sub the next day than to wait till the next morning and say, I can't make it and not perhaps get a sub that we need. And that's difficult for our staff because they really want to be there, right? Nobody wants to be in the classroom, in person with kids more than our teachers do. 
but we really need to give our staff permission to err on the side of safety, knowing that it's good for them, it's good for our kids, and provides us a better opportunity to cover that classroom. So. Great, thank you, appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Fulton, you acknowledged for um, the district in your opening comment that um, equity matters. You affirmed the importance of that for the Shawnee Mission School District. And I'm wondering if um, I would imagine there was a lot of work around that within this plan and I'm looking at things like some students may work on site in small groups on Fridays as determined by academic needs when we're you know, in option one hybrid learning mode and I believe there's some reference to focusing on priority standards and student use of proficiency scales, those kinds of things. Is that kind of where that, those two connect? So all three, elementary, middle, and high teams had what we called floaters, and Dr. McKinney and Dr. Bates uh, so floated between all three elementary, middle, and high plans to ensure that we had that equity piece in there. Additionally, specifically for Fridays, uh, we've talked a lot about that Friday model and what that might look like, and we think it can look like a, a real variety of things. It might be that it's a group, um, you know, special needs kids that really just need some more intensive instruction. It might be, um, you know, a group of band kids that the band director wants to bring in and work specifically with, you know, three or four kids that just need a little more time. Um, you know, welding, the bistro, uh, Blue Eagle, so programs like that, uh, ELL students that really just need more instruction face-to-face. -face. So we think Friday can look like a, a variety of things in that model to meet, to meet equity and individual learning plans for all kids. Um, thank you. Could, could you add a little bit to how the priority standard, is that, is that, Am I connecting those correctly when we think about equity matters and focusing on priority standards? Is that also a piece of? Priority standards represent the expectation that every student gets. So some of the, the structures that Dr. Hubbard was talking about provide opportunities for us to, to meet that guarantee so that we can work with kids to make sure that they, they meet those expectations for priority standards. I wanted to go back and touch on a little bit of what Reverend Guy was talking about with regards to specials. Um, in the hybrid model, if we only have a limited window of in-person instruction with kiddos and we're focusing on the core subject areas, will specials then likely be online at that point? Because I know those specials will still be in person at that juncture. And then um, my follow-up question on that then is, I know we have you know, a cadre of teachers who also do not feel comfortable being in the building, and so they're gonna be able to apply to teach in the online program. It seems like there might be a heightened level of risk for specials teachers because they do run through more kiddos um, than the regular classroom teacher. So I don't, I'm trying to understand the, so you would just see like, one or two classes for a couple of weeks, like so specials would be chunked up over a two or three week period, or how does that, I'm sorry, I, I, it, my, I didn't catch it all. How we laid it out in the plan was that, for example, um, 
let's say I have a fourth grade class. I have fourth grade class A, B, and C if I have a three-section building. And so on Monday, I may teach art to class A, and on Tuesday, I'm teaching art to class B, and on Wednesday, I'm teaching art to class C. We would take that rotation away to where we wouldn't be rotating every single day to a different fourth grade class or a different first grade class, whatever grade level may be. And instead, you would have that class, instead of having them you know, once every four days, um, you would have them every single day for two weeks. And so you would move through your priority standards and your instruction with those students just as you would on the rotating basis, but it would be daily. And then after I've taught class A in fourth grade for two weeks of art, I'm moving on then to class B for two weeks of art. And class A um, may be doing moving into music. And so that's how we would work through that rotation. So you'd still have like five classes a day, you right. would just have those five classes for two weeks as opposed to having mm -hmm. 30 classes Correct. cycled through. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, I understand that, thank you. And then on that note, um, I know we have purchased some PPE for educators and we've purchased some PPE for students, but do we know what the, that's a question I've gotten a lot, what are the numbers on PPE that we have um, and where are we at with that? So we're gonna we're gonna do that in the uh, operations part. Okay. We'll I'll, get to come. I'll just circle yeah. it and we'll come back. Make to sure it. you ask your question. We'll come back to it. It'll Don't be leave good. it on the table. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you. Go ahead, Ms. Skipper. Um, I guess my question for you is: any advice that you have for parents on how to prepare kids for school um, if they choose on-site and how how to prepare kids? so they can best um, do, do best in, in the environment and, and to deal with the change. Is there anything that you guys can think about to how, how what, what can parents, how can they help us in the next seven weeks get kids ready for whatever? Well, I'll give it a shot, but I think <laughs> Shelby could help with this answer also, but and probably all of us as parents could probably help answer this, but I think... Um, to, I, I think it's important to uh, work with kids on the flexibility. We all have to be flexible. I think saying to kids, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's important for all of us to say we don't necessarily know because we don't. And I think that, um, I think the most important thing is that they know it's going to look different. It's going to be different. Um, tell them to wear a mask every single day right now all the time. Um, even when no one's watching and, you know, if you're going to school and no one's watching, that doesn't mean you can take it off. Um, I would tell them that. I would also tell them, you know, this idea of being flexible, going, especially if you're in an in-person mode and you're going between hybrid, remote, and in-person, um, kids are going to have to be flexible and so are parents. So I think as a parent, I need to work on that. And as a, as kids, we need to help our kids understand that. Um, I think being kind to people is really important. Um, you know, mask shaming, the whole, that whole idea of people talked about, I mean, we saw that in some of our thought exchanges that kids are going to get bullied because they don't have the right kind of mask or the coolest mask. And so I think talking to kids about being kind and that it, this is a tough time for everybody and, and grace and patience as we all move forward in, in this, new, this new normal for us, whatever that might be. Um, 
Anyone want to add? <laughs> I'd say obviously the, the safety piece is, is priority one, but once you get past that, I think I would encourage any kids, my kids or any kids, that um, it's going to be real easy to pick holes in any program during anything going on these times to keep a positive attitude. And I think that people are going to complain. People always complain. And it's easy to complain, but it's a lot harder to try and find the good in situations. Teachers, students, parents, and I think if we can keep encouraging the kids to keep a positive outlook and see what can you do on your own, what resources can you look up, can you continue to stay on top of your homework, talk to me about what you're learning, email your teachers, things like that make a big difference. I think also when you think at an elementary level, it's like Dr. Hubbard mentioned that we're already going to start wearing the mask at home and we're going to work up to wearing it for a longer period of time. We're going to have transitions throughout the time that um, you're getting ready to go into the living room to watch TV, wash your hands, you're transitioning to a new location. Okay, now you're coming back in to get a snack in the kitchen, wash your hands, you're coming into a new location. So anytime you can start prepping them with those same kind of situations they're going to have at school, I think that helps them. When we start working with kids on six feet social distancing, think about your, here's a towel. This is the towel that, you know, and we put that in the plan, that kids will have a towel that they can utilize to sit on to help with social distancing, whether they're outside or whether they're in the classroom. Or, you know, when your teacher has you come down to the rug for instruction, you might not all be at the rug. Half of you might be at the rug. Half of you might be at your desk. So the more that we can, as we talked about, being flexible and what to expect, but just practicing those routines that we know are going to be a part of it. When you come in from recess, you're going to wash your hands. When you go out to recess, you're going to wash your hands. Um, all those things that are in the plan that you can start practicing at home will help. But, um, you know, they'll just become routines of what school becomes, just like we have routines now. The other thing that I would say would be important from a special education perspective is it just um, the more structure that we can start to build in. And even though we're talking flexibility, um, flexible structure, if you will. And so as we're talking about students moving between the different um, modes that we discussed earlier, you know, I would envision once we have staff back and, and they can have access to the, the students and, and materials, then we can create visual schedules, we can create social stories, we can create a lot of things. Helping them see visually, like Pam discussed about the, the towel, um, creating the separation, the natural separations, all of those things will be helpful and be important for us to continue to do, whether we're preparing for the school year or in, in the, the midst of the school year. Thank you. Are we talking about operations tonight, Dr. Fulton, too? We are. We okay. Did, when I'll we're done with the learning questions, we'll I'll hold we'll those there. questions. Yeah. Um, I have, I'm going I'm to sneak in a statement and then a question. Um, I'm glad, really glad that you led with the importance of equity, Dr. Fulton, because I think what has weighed most heavily for me as a mother and a board member is figuring out how we get this balance right, where we are able to serve as many students as well as possible, knowing the huge diversity of needs within our district. Um, and it just it strikes me that I think we have two really great options for parents to choose from, but navigating them through this choice is going to be difficult, especially for parents who might not speak English as their first language, or who might have kids with <coughs> special needs, or who might have multi, you know dual working families. Like I, I just want to make sure. I know we had about 55% participation on Skyward. 
I would have some concern that we might not have 100% participation in what logging options. So I just want to put out there some um, sort of my worry as a school board member is just making sure that we actually get families to really fill out their preference and understand the set of options in front of them. I think that's a big, big lift. Um, do you want to answer? That's kind of a statement. It's kind of a question. <laughs> it is. Um, we had that conversation just this afternoon, actually, in regards to um, I had it with Dan, and then I had it again with Dr. Fulton, and then I had it with Rachel, and I had it with David. So um, we were all talking about, we had about 60% return rate on the preference form, which honestly is really pretty good. That's, that's high for us in regards to some survey like that. And so um, the idea would be that we're going to do the final choice in Skyward again. We have some work to do with our new families, our kindergarten families that didn't quite didn't have access yet, and any new enrollee may or may not have had access yet. So, we're working on that solution, um, and we should have that should not be an issue moving forward. Once our secretaries are back at our building level, we really miss them right now, and we're ready for to, to see them soon. So um, they can help us with that, and we uh, plan to make individual phone calls um, with interpreters available. And then we're also looking potentially at a video option that would um, have a conversation between English and Spanish. Uh, we'll see if we can pull that off. But that's, our, that's what we talked about just as solutions today as we were problem solving. And so we know that we have to work harder at that. I'm, trying, I'm making in one extra question. If that's okay, because <laughs> that was kind of a statement. Um, so I know our plans assume 390 minutes of instruction per day and the navigating change document is at 360. Is there a reason that we're, both of those sound like a lot of minutes to be getting my kid to do work at home by the way, but is there a reason we're at 390 instead of? 390 is what we will log. Um, that's how we count the minutes for the requirements when we build our calendar. So 390 is what we log per day. Okay. And I, I wanna be clear that that's not direct instruction necessarily. So that is engaged in schoolwork. And it's more than the state requires, um, is that right? The navigating changes 360? For, in terms of auditing, fiscal auditing, they require 360. So yes, we are a little bit over that, but that is the, the school day that we currently have. So it would just, it would mirror what we, what we actually have. Got it, thank you. I get so excited when it's my turn to ask a question that I, I forget to like take a second and really truly thank you. And I, I am kind of glad that I took a minute because just hearing each and every one of you talk tonight and just your thoughtfulness behind your answers and just your care for kids um, is amazing. And I'm so proud of our district and I'm so proud of each and every one of you. And I thank you for all of the work that you have spent working these, coming up with these plans, changing these plans, having these water cooler discussions. We are very lucky to have each and every one of you and I thank you very much for the work that you've done for kids. My question is, um, I love the signature programs that we offer and I'm just wondering what school will look like for kids that want to utilize our signature programs. And I know Dr. Fleury isn't here, so I may be asking, putting you, Dr. Hubbard, on the spot, and I do apologize for that. So um, we, not just signature, I'm going to answer this for all kids. We have worked really hard to ensure that the plans 
that, that there's a clear plan for every kid regardless of what they're enrolled in. I, I think you heard me mention band. I mean, marching band is, you're a remote student, marching band's gonna be really tough, right? So um, the Bistro is an extremely hands-on program. I know these guys over here um, last spring, they were like, can we, can we, can we, can we? Um, the garden back here, it's ready, it's gonna be amazing, right? So. Our intent is to make sure all instruction and quality of classroom, regardless of what it is, that, that we ensure a high quality of education in those programs. And it's gonna be more difficult in hands-on courses, without question, and none of us are going to dispute that. And we're gonna to have to be out of the box thinkers to get that done. Um, but again, we might be able to use some of those Fridays um, to do that. And uh, we're gonna do the best we can to get it done. I met with uh, Dr. Flurry for a considerable amount of time today, and uh, we were actually looking at the schedules and how it tied in with the middle school and the high school on block and middle school traditional. And we went through it over and over, and he actually made the comment that these schedules are going to fit in perfect with the signature programs. He felt really good about the progress and about where they're going to end up at. So he, he loved the schedule. He was, an he was an instrumental part of it, and he says it's going to be great. So just a little Thank note you. on that. Thank you. appreciate that. My follow-up question is, I know that there's going to be 10,001 questions because we have 10,001 just different thoughts and, and I know a lot of the questions we've, you know, the big questions we're going to be addressing tonight, but there's going to be a lot of questions we aren't. So when parents do have questions that we may not be addressing or just little nuances and follow-up and clarification, what should parents do? Yeah, that's great. They can do a couple of things. First of all, uh, especially once principals are back in, they can contact their principal. I would suggest that as a starting point. Uh, they can ask the district if they have a kind of a global question. Um, they can contact my office if they need to, and we can get them directed to the right person up here to, to help with that. But uh, I really think probably going to their principal, I, I would imagine for most of the questions parents are going to have, the quest uh, questions the parents will have, the principals will be able to respond to those. And principals report back on Thursday, is that correct? I'm going to have Dr. Hubbard uh, <laughs> give you an update on that. This is one of those times when I say, I don't know, <laughs> and I'm hoping for grace. No, uh, we're waiting. Um, we really need to know the calendar to know when everybody reports. And, and that's a big question we have with a lot of our staff out there, uh, paras, um, kitchen, kitchen staff, um, secretaries, when am I reporting? What does that mean for me? And, and we understand that and we are working diligently to get all of those work schedules completed, but uh, principals will be back in the buildings um, next week. And I can't tell you the specific day yet, but they will be in next week once we know what the calendar is. Thank you. I think I'm gonna be the first board member to say I have no more urgent questions uh, on the learning piece, so I'll pass. When Dr. Fulton gave his presentation, there was a reference to extracurricular activities and sports and the role that Keisha plays in this decision-making. Obviously, we saw another state-level entity make a decision today, basically handed it back to the districts. Um, where are we with what we either know or anticipate from Keisha regarding extracurricular activities and sports? Um, and I ask that also because we're going to make a decision on behalf of Shawnee Mission, but many of our activities interact with other districts who might look a little different than what we're doing. Would that affect sports, or is everything going to happen based on the state-level decision? I would assume we would be making some of those locally, 
Is that accurate? I would assume so too. I don't know, Mr. Kramer, if you want to. Yeah. The, the one thing that I will add that I think was a huge victory for kids today is kids that sign up for remote learning prior to today would not have been able to participate in any Keisha activity or, or athletic. Um, but now, as of today, um, based on our, how our remote plan is written, if, if, if kids choose to be full-time remote, um, they can participate in Keisha activities. So that, I think that's a huge victory for kids. Um, good evening. Currently, Keisha has made no statement on when fall sports would start. They had an executive director's meeting today. They did release a few more documents on mitigating protocols for sports. But um, Keisha won't come out with any statement until probably Monday afternoon, Tuesday. They have an executive board meeting on Monday. They're sending a survey out to superintendents in the state about their reopening plans. And then from that, the executive directors then will vote and then come out with a schedule and a calendar for activities. Thank you. And, and the clarifying question that you might not know is, um, will there be potentially a shuffle between fall sports and spring sports because of this? Is that even a possibility? There was a lot of discussion on that because there's some states that have done that, but Keisha at this point is not interested in flipping seasons. All right, thank you. Uh, have there been any, um, were there any special considerations for the rising seniors that really had to be worked through and discussed in, in the development of the plans? Was there? You know, I'm just thinking, are there? Can, I, I'm not sure I understand your question completely. Um, it, just in terms of, were there any particular requirements or modifications or um, considerations that had to be made that we learned from seniors last year that are kind of being reflected in the plan in terms of um, getting enough credit hours or getting, um, working on application, you know, thinking about college applications and working with counselors for letters, are there, I, I mean, maybe there wasn't anything that w really needed to be differentiated. So the only, I can think of two things right off the top of my head, um, one of which was last year's seniors, uh, K, KSDE provided a waiver for them to meet the state requirements and not the district requirements, and, and they waived some requirements. I have not seen any information in KSDE or their plan that would indicate that seniors would have that option this year. That doesn't mean they're not going to, but as sure. of now. The statement I read said that it was not planning to do that. That's my understanding as well. And um, the only other, the second piece of that is in the new calendar, at least as it has been approved and likely how we will present it on Monday, the seniors would go to school that first day with the ninth graders, which hasn't happened in the past. That would be new. And that day in looking at, the, in reflecting back on the high school schedules, which I've seen all five of them plus, um, plus Horizons and Arrowhead, um, that kids, a lot of that time would be spent on some of those activities around 
the career um, portions that we do throughout the year so that we had focus on just the seniors. So some of that career planning um, information is reflective in some of those high school schedules on that first day. Those are the only two things that I can think of off of the top of my head. Dr. Sinclair, the, Dr. Gilhouse, anything? Oh. You made reference to access to the counselors, and, and, and our expectation will remain they'll still have access to yeah. the counselors, still have access to information about uh, entering colleges, reference letters. I don't see any of that changing whatsoever. Okay. And uh, Thank you. And so if they're looking at, say, like the option to the remote, doing remote only learning, as they're building their schedule, they would just they would have support in paying attention to make sure they're they're getting all of the required courses they would need to graduate with the more limited selection. It would you know they would still have options to hit all of their required. Absolutely. Meet, you know, opportunity to meet all of their requirements. Absolutely. And um, the other thing that and I talked to Dr. McKinney about this today, but that remote program will have support staff with it. It will have to. I mean, if you look at our survey, we could potentially have 6,000 to 10,000 kids in a remote program. And so we will have to have specials teachers in there. We will likely have to assign social workers or, or and need to assign counselors and all of those types of support services that are so important to kids in that remote environment. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I've been contacted about is um, the opportunity for teachers if they are teaching the online only cadre to teach from a building to, so that they can have access to their materials and be in their be on campus um, even if they're not interacting with students and it's my understanding that that is something that is going to be in place that teachers would be teaching from one of the Shawnee Mission buildings even if they were dealing solely with the students online. We have talked quite extensively about that for both options if we were in an all remote or if we were in a um, option one remote in that in that model and um, unless there were some sort of countywide shutdown that says it's not safe to go to work teachers will have that option. Thank you. I'm gonna wait for my uh, questions for technology so go ahead Sambri. Um, just one question I've gotten to is about teachers who, act, who teach in Shawnee Mission and have students that go to Shawnee Mission School District. Are you making any specific plans around that? And um, I know that's probably part of the massive HR FAQ document that's being developed, but that's a question I've gotten multiple times. So we're still having a lot of conversation about that and seeing what our options are. Dr. Neil has worked extensively on this, so I'm going to let her um, add anything that I, I miss potentially. I, I can tell you that we have a roughly 1,100 students that um, are children of our teachers in the, in the Shawnee Mission School District, and that is just SMSD students, that 1,100. I believe 537 of those are elementary kids, and so um, we are thinking about that right now and how we can best support our teachers in especially in a hybrid model and what that might look like and so we're, we're having those discussions now um, we also talked about you know some of the things we've brainstormed is um, being able to bring their kids with them um, potentially obviously that would room would would matter right if we have the space capacity in those particular classrooms in addition to that um, 
maybe just having a place for them to do their remote learning in the building and be supervised by, by an adult. Or that's where Dr. Neal is very important here, working on that option for us. Also, um, allowing maybe uh, a alphabet flip. So maybe if my kids were supposed to come on this day, but it would be better for them to come on this day as a teacher, um, that we, we would be um, looking at the alphabet to see if that would help teachers in their planning. So Dr. Neal, do you want to add anything to that? I think for us, I think you covered most of it. I think the, the biggest challenge as we've looked at any kind of a child care option is around the space availability. We know that if we have um, students and staff on site, even in a hybrid model, part of the, the beauty of that is trying to distance. So finding that, um, that space availability. But if we're looking at just school age, that helps us. Um, you know, if we're looking at younger children, that gets us into more of a childcare licensing piece that's, that's much more challenging. But if we're looking at trying to um, support our uh, staff and teachers, and the numbers that you gave are all employee groups. It's not just teachers, so that would be all of our employee groups because we know that's important too. We will have um, paraprofessionals, educational aides that directly support students also, so we want to be considerate of all of the needs of our staff. But um, some decisions would have to be made around the availability of the space, but also on um, the staffing, what those expectations would be there. I might add this too. You know, one of the, one of the challenges we face is because we don't know how many remote only students we're going to serve. Uh, we have to develop a staffing model for all of this, and it needs to stay within our, our budget. Right? It's good. Everyone is going to be struggling to, to make sure they have enough staff for their schools. It's not unique to us. Everybody's, everyone is dealing with the, the exact same issues. And so we have some unknowns that we still have to work through. And uh, I'm sure there are some some challenges down the road that uh, we might be anticipating, but don't yet quite understand. And so that's that's where we get into, like for example, the talk topic we we're just talking about. Some of this may be come down to whether or not we have the people available to make this work. So that's why we haven't committed yet to to those kinds of uh, structures. Here's the honest answer: We'll just have to see what's possible. Do we need to do another round, or do we think we can move on to I the... I have two more, and then I'm good. I have my question and then my follow-up. Okay, all right. Well, let's go for it. I have a question um, So when is an FAQ going to be available for parents so they can read these, you know, frequently asked questions? Well, so the, FA, so the FAQ I referred to uh, earlier was targeting mostly uh, staff on human resources issues. But in terms of getting information out to staff on the options that they have available to them, that's something we're going to, we're already, we're going to be working on that immediately because the parents need to know what those options are so they can think through what the best choices are uh, for their children. And that's something that we would be getting out next week. And then my follow-up question is, when do parents have to decide about what option they need to pick? Our goal would be to get started next week and come on up, Dr. Hubbard. I say, <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to turn that over to her. We'll have to have some sort of a defined window on this, but if you want to, we are hopeful. 
We were hopeful to get it turned around in a week to 10 days because we have to provide a staffing model and it's gonna be, t it's gonna be tight. So we should look for communication from the district Next, next week, next early week. next week, early next week. Okay. And it will come in the same form in Skyward. We need to work through the, the new students in our kindergartners to make sure that they have access. And, um, we have a little over 300, I think just elementary new enrollments. Is that accurate? That's what I recalled from today. The other one other question that hasn't been asked that I think it's important to, stay, to say is most teachers, and, and I really truly mean most teachers will teach in either option one or teach in option two. There could be a few exceptions in regards to um, specialized certification, especially at the secondary levels, where I might teach mostly in person, but my fifth hour course just happens to be a remote course but generally speaking, most teachers will teach in one option or the other. Thank you. Amy had the opportunity for one last. Does anyone have one final question as we go over these options? I think we were gonna get to the end of it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Now I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Atha and they're gonna walk through uh, questions that you have about operations. Wondering, could you bring up slide 53, please? It's actually up at the. It's, it's up at the. Oh, David can do it. 53, 53, you say, sir? That one's it. That's yeah. it. Thank you, David. Good evening. Two hours. <laughs> and counting. A lot of great questions. A lot of good information. Uh, operations composed of health services, facilities, O&M, activities, both extracurricular and co-curricular, transportation, food services, and information and communication technology. We're committed to develop a district operations plan to reopen our schools in the safest manner possible for our students and staff. To guide our work, we relied on publications from the Centers for Disease Control, better known as the CDC, Johnson County and Kansas Departments of Health and Environment, Children's Mercy Hospital, educational plans provided by the Shawnee Mission learning teams. We worked in tandem with, with our learning side of the table as well as our leadership as well as the Kansas Guide to Learning and Safety, and that's the state plan. The protocols detailed in this plan provide risk reduction strategies to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. It should be noted that this, as Dr. Fulton said, is a living document, one that will evolve and change as we learn more. In the meantime, we will continue to consult with local county and state health partners, and we express our sincere gratitude for their guidance and support as we navigate this challenge in the Shawnee Mission School District. We will continue to seek the recommendations from public health experts as our guide to maintaining the safest learning environment possible. 
Dr. Fulton went over the high points of the operations plan and now we will have op the operations department directors and staff provide a little more information and answer any questions that you may have. And we'll, we'll follow a little different format because each one of these departments, as you saw when I went through them, is pretty unique and they're standalone in and of themselves. And I, and I want to emphasize to you that operations exists for one purpose, and that is to serve and support the instruction, the learning, our teachers, and our students. That's the only reason we exist. So as you hear this plan, try to think about how does that fit to supporting our teachers and our kids and our staff overall. Um, I'd like, we're going to do it a little different. As I said, we're going to go department by department and, and, and you'll be able to answer, ask your questions as per the department and we'll move right through it. Uh, I'd like to reintroduce Shelby Reback, Director of Health Services, and as she's coming to the podium, I'd like to share something with you about our health services department that Shelby will not say. Shelby supervises 48 nurses. I really think it's a blessing in the Shawnee Mission School District that we have a nurse in each of our schools. And when I say a nurse, I'm saying a registered nurse in each one of our schools. Many of our nurses volunteered their time to include Shelby that worked, and they worked with the Johnson County Health Department and they probably shouldn't use this term, manned the, the telephones there. <laughs> in our case, woman the telephones, I guess. And, uh, uh, and as consequently, they have become fall in that area of experts on COVID-19. So with that said, Shelby, walk us through the slides. Well, I just want to echo what uh, Dr. Atha said. I have an amazing team of nurses. If you haven't had an opportunity when you're in the buildings, please go meet them because they have done such great work, not only for Shawnee Mission School District, but for our entire community. And I so appreciate them. Okay, so... Um, the very first thing, awaiting guidance on temperature checks. So this whole team behind me knows they, I, they were peeling me off the ceiling when the governor announced temperature checks. First of all, temperature checks have never been a part of mitigating measures for COVID-19 from day one. Um, so that, that concerns me. Why are we adding in something that hasn't been a mitigating measure from day one. Um, the second thing is, if you look at the Johnson County Tableau um, data, only today, only 40% of COVID positive cases have a temperature, less than half. So in our district, if we are, just say we're in a hybrid model, that's around 13,500 temperatures for students and 3,900 temperatures for staff on a daily basis. 
So um, I'm very concerned about it, and I'm awaiting guidance. That, that's really all I can say on that. As far as mitigating measures, um, personal distancing, this team behind me, we have all been working on what that's going to look like in our schools. We all believe strongly that there needs to be education up front, um, education provided to students before they even get here, education provided to parents, education provided to staff. And then we all need to role model it and practice it when they get here so that it's comfortable to them, to the, to the um, staff, just as well as the students. So these are things we're working on. I need my team back because as you know, our, you know our, our teachers, our nurses, all of our experts are not here right now. So this team is thinking through it, but we really need our experts back to lay those final plans. Hand hygiene, again, that's gonna have to be something that is incorporated into every classroom situation. Is it a lot of time? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Masks and face shields, we have ordered a large number, I believe 200,000 masks for um, 100,000 of those are the kid size ones and 100,000 are the uh, regular size ones. We will dole those out as needed, but again, I want staff and students to have masks that fit them properly. Miss Lewis? I know. Sorry. Um, you need to have a mask that you're not messing with. You know, she's my friend. She's not going to be. Um, you need to have a mask that you feel good in. It doesn't hurt your ears. These are the things that I want the education out there before anybody walks in our doors. And, and we, we've got a lot of work to do, but we need our experts back. We need our teams back. Uh, face shields, we ordered, I believe, 5,000, which um, is about roughly enough for two per teacher. And then the nurses will have 20 in their offices. All of these face shields are reusable. So, you know, that's, uh, that's going to get us a little ways. We can order more equipment if we need to. Gowns and gloves aren't going to be necessary that much. COVID does not transfer through the skin, but we're going to have them available for those um, bloodborne pathogen, pathogen procedures that we've always used them for. Ventilation, cleaning, disinfection, we have an amazing team. Um, Bob, Tyler, and Judd uh, have worked with Children's Mercy. I really haven't had to do much. They're so awesome. I just kind of sit and listen. But we are addressing these issues. We know that if you have a mask on and it catches those tiny little respiratory droplets that could be picked up in the ventilation, your mask is helping. So again, it goes back to the mitigating measures. This, um, the academic team did a really good job of talking about cohorting. We know we can do that well at the elementary level. It gets a little dicier at the middle and high school level with uh, classes changing. But these are things that at least we're aware of, and we can work on them. Visitor policies, again, we need our experts back. We need those front office staff. We need our principals back um, to really help us with what those look like. But um, I, will, I will say that you know we need to limit visitors to essential only uh, when we do get back. Isolation is for an ill 
person, isolation ill. And uh, the county is working with us to establish those protocols for what to do when we have an ill student or an ill staff member. They're working with us to determine when do we put that person in the isolation room. They're working with us on um, the plans. Every building will have a specific plan for isolation. Quarantine is for someone who has been exposed. And again, we're waiting on the county to give us exact guidance on what that's going to look like. Um, you know, if we're quarantining for 14 days with every single exposure, or if it's just the people who, through contact tracing, are identified as being uh, in close contact with that person. And then the COVID point person will be a registered nurses in every building. And those people will be doing the contact tracing for their specific building. Like before the questions, I would like to interject one thing about mask. Um, as Shelby said, we did order 200,000 masks. That sounds like a lot, and it is. But they're masks that look just like the one that I'm wearing. And if every student and every teacher was provided one of these masks and it was changed every day, 200,000 masks would last us about a little over six days. Cost, you'll see that on your board agenda coming up on Monday, $47,000 for 200,000 masks and about I want to say $10,000 for those face shields. Yeah. It's, it's not the many, but it, as if, but it can build up. That's why we're going to require masks, as has been stated this evening, for all children, all of our kids five years old and older, and all of our staff. I think Shelby brought up a very good point about the importance of that mask fitting properly. The mask that we ordered on the, yeah, we ordered two different sizes, but, but at that time, it, it's better if the kids, we would encourage that kids provide their own and our teachers provide their own. Um, now with that said, we will have masks available like this evening uh, for patrons that would have come to our meeting this evening and if they didn't have a mask, we'd have, we would have had a mask available for them. Uh, as a kid gets on, as a student gets on a bus of a morning, if they don't have a mask, we're not going to turn them away from the bus. We're going to allow them to get on the bus and, they'll, and we'll provide them a mask. Um, same with teachers that may come to school or during the day the mask is soiled. Something like that. That's what the mask that we're purchasing is really for. But we need the support of our families to, to provide the mask and we do know we do know, without a doubt, we have families in need in our community. So I think a good, this is a good time to say it to you and to our community. I know the other night I was in a PTA meeting with our, our officers, and they asked how they could help. Well, face masks might be a, a way to help. Our, our uh, um, foundation might be a way for the foundation to help. Uh, we, we live in an extremely benevolent community that's always willing to help in a time of need. We see that in the food service when we piloted the program a while back. Seems to be going 
pretty doggone well. So, without the, with that said, do you have anything to add to that? Okay. Questions? Um, I actually, I'm going to start because it's on the mass question, and then we can rotate around. Um, will we be providing guidelines to the community on what types of masks are? appropriate or acceptable or <laughs> meet a standard of safety, uh, you know, is a bandana enough, is a scarf enough, does it need to be just as a cloth homemade mask enough, that sort of thing. Will we have those guidelines for folks as they make those decisions? My understanding is that there will be expectations that is, it is appropriate as far as if there's any images or wording on it, which would be in, um, in line with our clothing, you know, t-shirts and that, that all has to um, line up. But as far as the health uh, issues with masks, it's just a cloth face covering. Um, it, this does not meet PPE guidelines, so it's whatever is comfortable for that student or that teacher. Okay, great, thank you. And I'll shoot over to Jamie. Thank you so much for all you've done, Ms. Rebecca. I am grateful. I know you're an army of one right now in your department, and. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I guess a statement, first suggestion possibly. I watched uh, the NEA County Mission negotiations when you came in and talked to the teachers and teachers were able to ask you a lot of questions. And I thought that dialogue um, was amazing. Um, I think teachers felt a lot better hearing from you. Um, and I think as a parent, you know, we're, again, we're going to ask a lot of questions and we're probably going to ask a lot of the most common questions that people have. But I think it would be amazing if at some point in the very near future we could have some type of a public forum with Ms. Rebeck where teachers could ask specific questions, parents could ask specific questions, just to calm people's fears um, and maybe clear up any confusion that people may have. So just a suggestion um, because I, I appreciate your expertise in this area um, and, and again thank you. So my question is if a kiddo and or a teacher has COVID what happens? We're waiting on that uh, exact guidance from the county health department. We know a little bit right now we know for sure we're going to have an isolation room uh, that will not be the nurse's office because of course our nurse's offices hold diabetic supplies, life-saving medication, daily meds, so we don't want to tie up that room. Um, but we know there, there has to be an isolation room identified and we're waiting for our principals, our secretaries, our teachers, our, our experts in the buildings to get back to decide where that is and then we're waiting on county guidance for when to isolate a child and what that needs to look like or a staff member as well. Okay, so just to be clear, this is not a decision that Shawnee Mission is making. This is a decision that the county is making, and so we are waiting on them for their guidance, which do we have any idea? Because I know that this is a big deal for parents, again, in determining which option they choose. Um, do we have any idea when we might receive that guidance from the county health department? I think it'll be coming soon. I think they were kind of waiting to see what happened at the state level and kind of what um, executive orders stated. Um, we have been meeting twice a week at least with the county health department, the six um, school district nursing directors. So um, I'm sure they're close to finalizing those things, but they just needed some final puzzle pieces there before they could push those out to us. 
So I, I would say in the next week or so. Thank you. Um, thank you. I know one of the concerns I've heard mentioned is that aging buildings might have aging HVAC systems and parents are worried about viruses getting recirculated. But I believe I read that we have upgraded our filters or will upgrade some of our filters. Is that? That's true and that's forthcoming uh, in the facility um, presentation. Yeah, and we'll be happy to address those questions very specifically. We've got everybody here to do that. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, I'll just wait till then. I have no questions, thank you. Um, thank you. You had mentioned the um, personal distancing and that it might be a little more challenging in our middle schools and high schools, which I think that's been a, a common observation that folks have been, or question that people have been raising. Could you speak a little bit more to that, or I'm sorry if that was more of an instructional question of how the, all the different committees and feedback teams and whatnot throughout the summer have been really thinking about how to manage that piece, like in middle schools and high schools as kids are the passing time is I think one of the big ones I think. Well, I think that's what's so nice about having this team mm -hmm. uh, because on the instructional side, they have thought through uh, many different scenarios and, and so that helped me give guidance on all of those different scenarios. And then on the facility side, like the visuals, the spots on the floor, um, the directional signs in the hallways for passing. We know there's gonna need to be an educational component with our teachers and with our students um, regarding that six feet of social distancing. So I think all the teams together and again, once we get our experts back, those teachers and um, principals and nurses, you know, then there's gonna, those plans are gonna be even more um, final or yeah. better. Yeah. I appreciate that, thank you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask just a little bit about the logistics of the temperature checks, but it seems like you're already dealing with that already and kind of we don't know all the information on that we're waiting for the guidance but I know we had talked about or in the plans that were presented like a staggered entry start of the day so that we didn't have a bunch of kids congregating in the front of the building would we potentially have to increase the amount of that stagger time so that we can add in the temperature checking or I'm I'm just trying to imagine how we get socially distance all of the kids' temperature checks before they get in the building and what that looks I mean. Honestly, Heather, if you're trying to make me cry, you're doing a really good job. I'm really not trying to make you cry. I was thinking about just like the practical implications of it if we're trying to hit these minutes a day. And I'm not saying I don't want to not take the appropriate measures. I just, I'm trying to think through what that looks like when you're trying to keep kids that are wiggly six feet apart and get them screened and get them in. I don't know, I, my apologies. This is bigger than me, you're working on it. I just, I'm, I know I'm thinking it through, I'm sure our parents are thinking it through and trying to figure out, I mean, our, at our elementary building, it's just like a strip of sidewalk. It's not even like there's an area to congregate. And one of the things we did to increase our safety protocol was we eliminated all of the additional entrances into the building which was the appropriate thing to do in order to keep our kids safe from other external threat measures that we have to take into consideration in these times. However, 
We now have quite an intentional bottleneck to get into my child's elementary building. My apologies. Well, you, you, this is, that would be uh, a a good description of our normal day. Right, my apologies. As we, no, no, that's, that's fine. I think you've identified a lot of the variables that we've been talking about that make a simple thing like temperature checks a huge logistical and staffing challenge. And the high school, like all those interviews. Yeah, yeah, and you know, that's, this is also, these are also the kinds of things that, you know, the nurses at the very, at the Johnson County School Districts are talking about this. The superintendents, we've been meeting regularly since March, weekly or more than once a week. We're talking about these kinds of issues and um, we don't have an answer to it yet. It's, it's a logistical challenge and it will also be costly because we're going to have to buy a lot of equipment to be able to do this in an efficient way. So we'll keep, that's why this document's a living document. We have more to, <laughs> more to add to it as time goes on here. I have a question about testing. So is the county going to help us at all or because um, in, in getting kids that potentially have this tested in speeding up the, those times that test results come back, are, are we going to be able to test kids or I, I have no idea. But um, I know that I had a friend that was tested. It took 11 days to get the results back. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's an issue. Is the county going to help us at all with that or... So, Sarah, the conversations right now, the county does testing for 12-year-olds and up, um, so they will help us with that. The problem is what you just described. It's when you test and then we have so many cases in the community that the labs are backed up and you're not getting your test results for 11 days. So that's when you've been tested, you have to stay quarantined until you get your test results back. So you're looking at an 11-day quarantine for a staff or a student in our building or, or however long it takes to get their test results. Um, the county has asked the school nurses to do our own building level contact tracing so that it speeds up the process. Um, so therefore, if, you, if somebody tests positive, hopefully that parent or that um, staff member is letting us know that and the county will be in contact with us as well. The school nurse can then reach out to that positive person to find out who has been within six feet for more than 10 minutes. And hopefully, if we're doing it right um, in the classrooms, that may not be a lot of people. If we're all masked up, if we're six feet apart, we may not have to quarantine a lot of people. Um, and we're not going to be responsible for outside of school contact tracing. It's just within our buildings so that it keeps the number of cases lower in our buildings. So the nurses are actually helping the county out by um, speeding up the process of test positives. We cannot test because um, it requires the PPE of an N95 mask, which uh, that requires a fit testing and a cleaning, which we don't have the equipment to do that. And the county has already said they don't have the capacity to help us. Okay. Um, and how will we know if, if we sense that somebody has it, how will we know that, I mean, how, how can we require that they get a test? I mean, how can how we make them? Do we, have any, do we have anybody that can do it here that we can send them to? Um, we won't be requiring testing because 
if you, the county will be giving us the guidelines when to um, exclude somebody, just like they do for everything else. You know, chicken pox, mumps, measles, fever, vomiting, all those things. They give us exclusion criteria. They will be giving us the exclusion criteria for COVID. So whether that's two symptoms of COVID, whether that's a fever, whatever it is, they are going to give us that. And then we will follow their guidelines. Um, we cannot require anyone to get any sort of medical intervention, but the 14-day um, exclusion or um, whatever the county recommends at that time, there's some talk that younger kids may have a, a less days in quarantine. So whatever the county recommends, we will follow, and every school district in Johnson County will follow as well. So if they go, though, and they get a test and it's negative, would they be allowed back in if they don't so have any more? That's a, that's a great question, and it, it's a misconception that people have. So the, the incubation period from the time you're exposed to the time you would develop symptoms is up to 14 days. So even if you test on day four after you've been exposed and you're negative, you must still complete your 14 days of, isolate, or of quarantine because on day seven, you could end up positive. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. There is no option out of the 14-day quarantine once you've been exposed. Mm -hmm. I'm just uh, wondering, I, it sounds like we're waiting on isolation protocols and quarantine protocols from the county and gating criteria as well from the county. Will those three likely come together or? I think that's reasonable. Okay. Yeah. And then my other question was just around if we have a situation where a member of our staff is exposed and has to quarantine, and again, this is probably part of the massive FAQ for HR, are we, um, we're still paying them, I assume. Um, what, like, kind of what happens with compensation for staff who are, who are having to quarantine because of an exposure? Now I may cry. <laughs> um, so the answer is it depends, right? If, uh, if there is an exposure as a result of contact at work, uh, we would absolutely uh, provide a pool of leave uh, for paid time off here. There are certain circumstances if a staff member were to travel voluntarily to an identified hotspot on their own, uh, and then as a result when they return knowingly have to quarantine for 14 days before re-engaging, that would be a different set of circumstances we would have to work specifically through with that individual. There would be some occasions for travel of that kind that we would support if they had a family emergency, if they had a funeral, if there were something that drew them there, it wasn't truly voluntary, but if they took a vacation to an, uh, an area that was a hot spot, those, that would be something we would have to work through in a different way. So again, these, these are, and I know you're gonna get a little uh, tired of hearing it, but so much of this, what we have learned the most, I think, is that so many of these cases have to be ha handled individually. And uh, that's another reason we're so grateful to have Shelby and to have Rachel England because those, uh, their expertise and their two particular fields cross over a lot when we start talking about eligibility for different forms of leave. And regardless of what the circumstances are, we're working to try to effectively gauge eligibility, practice compassion, and be consistent. And we're not 
associating blame or judgment on anyone. We just want to find them the best way to manage the situation they find themselves in. And having those two support systems in Shelby and Rachel have been essential. So. I think it's worth repeating, um, and this may be more for you, Dr. Aitha. Um, this is all very expensive, this PPE, you know, these hand sanitizers, all of it. Where is this money coming from? We have received about uh, 2.6 million um, in what's called CARES money that can be spent solely on um, COVID-related uh, purchases. Um, so the mass purchase uh, would come out of COVID, would come out of the CARES funds. So these are federal dollars that have come our way. Um, I don't know if there'll be another round after this, um, but that's what we have available to us right now. And we'll go through that 2.6 million fairly quickly and be able to document that it was all spent on COVID-related uh, issues or expenses. Thank you. And my follow-up question is, um, anyone who's volunteered in an elementary school and seen kiddos prepare for lunch and the hand washing knows that's like herding cats for teachers. And so I'm just wondering what the hand washing looks like in an elementary school um, setting, for example. So this is exactly why we need our experts back, our teachers. They are gonna have such creative solutions for this. Um, it has to be a part of their day in order to keep themselves and their students safe. So um, they'll figure it out. I'm confident in that. So will we, will we be providing some guidance or will that be like a, a per building level type decision or how does that look um, just to help teachers maybe feel better about the whole hand washing scene? Um, and t tell me a little bit more about what you mean providing guidance. I mean, just some suggestions, like how you're gonna get all these kids oh. to be washing their hands. And, yeah. and what is the recommendation in terms of hand washing? Like how frequently does that need to occur? Um, so so um, 20 seconds for the length of time. And then um, as far as how often, um, you know, if you think about it, COVID does not transmit through the hands. So just dirty hands is not the issue. It's if they touch their eyes, nose, or mouth that becomes the issue. So um, again, I think when the teachers get back, um, we'll work with them and I think Pam might have something good to um, say. We've been working on um, a guide for our principals and our teachers um, that address a lot of these different issues that kind of say, think about this, and then they'll be working on systems within their building as far as like arrival like Heather mentioned um, and what that would look like and what those changes would need to be as routines in the classroom. But you know, it, it you might have half the students that you normally would have if we were in a hybrid model, but also it's not going to be, okay, it's time for lunch now, let's line up and go um, wash our hands. I mean, you're gonna have students washing their hands all the time throughout the day. It's almost going to be one of those um, because when you look at the plan, it says that students are washing their hands throughout the school day 
in the classroom, when they leave the classroom, when they come back into the classroom, um, we have the hand sanitizers. That's just going to be part of those routines. It, it won't be that we wait. It'll be, you know, the students wash their hands, and now the next one's going to be washing their hands while we're working on our math lesson. Um, those kind of things are going to be flexible. Great. Thank you. Um, I know that there are a few school districts locally that have been doing summer school and North Kansas City has started their year-round school already. So we have some local examples of kids in classrooms with teachers and admittedly they might be smaller sizes of classes, but are we tracking what's happening in those? Are we tracking whether COVID is being spread in any of those or what some of their best practices that they're discovering are we trying to get as much information as we can from people who are already having students in classrooms you raise such a good point um, this has been something that i've had personal conversations with dr lee norman about and with a pediatric infectious disease doc at ku who's been helping me all summer long and then many of our nurses we do not have transmission data. We don't know what the transmission rates are child to child, child to adult, adult to adult, or adult to child, and we need that data. Um, it's difficult because the pandemic has overwhelmed our systems to the point that the people, who, the epidemiologists who would normally give us that data they're serving as contact tracers and you know i mean they're working as hard as they can just to keep us informed but everybody agrees we need transmission data it's important to help us make decisions I might very add, good question sorry i might add too that uh, so there's the health side of it it's a great update and then there's also the uh, on the superintendent side of it there are there there are regular meetings involving superintendents throughout the KC metro region. And we're comparing notes. What's working, what isn't, what are our strategies. So I suspect that as we continue that sharing in the weeks and months ahead, that we'll begin to get insight from some of the school districts that are already getting some of these programs underway. Okay. And of course, we'll be looking at what's happening nationally as well. Because as schools get up and running, you're, you're seeing around the country, a variety of hybrid models and, and and I know that you know we probably all have uh, connections around the country where we're connecting with people and saying hey how's it going there what's working what isn't a lot of a lot of sharing of strategies question about the secondary school settings um, if there are not sinks available in every classroom would you say the research, the science, that the hand sanitizer is effective if a sink and soap isn't available in water? Soap and water is always going to be best. We know that. So I'm hoping that these teachers will really find some ways to incorporate soap and water. Uh, hand sanitizer, of course, if you do not have access to soap and water, is the next best thing. Okay. But again, I think we're really going to work with our staff that uh, soap and water is best. Thank you. No, there there are other districts again, both uh, in Johnson County, but also really throughout the country that have their. Uh, there's a number of variations of the hybrid model, but some of the elements that we've included 
you know, going two or three days a week, uh, splitting kids by alphabet, you're starting to see these strategies emerge nationally. And people are in the process of getting ready to implement them. So, And that's true of that's true particularly of larger school districts. You know, when we think of large, we're, you know, 27,000 students. Uh, but really, large, a large school district around the country would be anything probably six, 7,000. There's a lot of school districts, and this is true of Kansas, uh, that, are, that have 500 students in the entire district. I mean, that's the median size of, of a Kansas school district. So. When you're dealing with 500 students K through 12, that's a whole different ballgame than when you're dealing with thousands of students. I think you're especially seeing those hybrid models emerge in districts that uh, that are uh, somewhat bigger. Yeah, follow up is, have we looked at risk mitigation for specific activities, like Brad mentioned sports, Texas has canceled football for the year, and that's Texas. Um, as a parent of a band student, there's a lot of exhalation happening in band and in choir. Are we looking at specific strategies for those types of special activities? Is that outside our bandwidth right now because we need to just be focusing on getting the academics started? Like, but I just I know that that's a question that parents are particularly curious. I know um, my own children's physician has said that like physical activity is super important to stay healthy and. Other things, and thank you. <laughs> I'm Bill Thomas. I'm the new performing arts coordinator. If you haven't met me yet, or I haven't met you, um, so actually, Acacia uh, is coming out with guidelines on that. Um, in NFHS has there's a huge study right now that's being funded by uh, NAM, National Association of Music Merchants, College Band Directors National Conference, uh, NFHS, all these big organizations because that's a huge concern. Um, and if you read any of the early studies that first first mention of super spreaders was a choir back in Washington State. And so there's a Colorado study right now that's being funded, and all the information that's coming out of that says this. Masks are the way to go. Six feet of social distancing takes care of most of all of that. Um, the initial guidance came out last Monday, and I got to sit in a meeting with some of the folks who are involved with that. The final guidance will be coming out uh, by the end of July that... Uh, the, right now, the initial study is looking at individuals, trumpets, clarinets, singers, but it's individuals. They're now modeling the large groups, and all that will be forthcoming, but life is good. They all say performing arts can continue. Um, can't speak on the sports side, I'll let Dick do that, but that performing arts are incredibly important for our kids, uh, social, emotional, and the breathing portion, especially if we can rehearse outside, easily mitigated. And if we can go inside with social distancing, they, they have guidelines for that, so we're in good shape. Thank you. We have uh, Dr. Eight that's going to... Okay, let's move on to uh, Bob Robinson, facilities. Advance the slide, please. Good afternoon, or evening, I guess it is now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the facility staff has been uh, monitoring the ever-changing uh, directions that we, we keep getting and trying to stay ahead of the things that we need to do to make our building safe for our students. Uh, we collaborate uh, weekly with the, uh, some of the surrounding district's uh, support staff. We uh, communicate with Children's Mercy and other uh, suppliers of, of best practices. 
I have uh, Tyler Club, the director of facility, and Jed Rimmers here with me. Jed's the coordinator of custodial supervisors, and we're here to answer your questions. Can you tell me, is it okay to? I think they, they have several slides, but they, I think you're ready for questions, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Do you want to start with uh, this end? Um, I'm happy to it looks really comprehensive I'm really grateful that we've been working with Children's Mercy to do the best that we can do to make our buildings as safe as possible um, one question I've gotten multiple times is whether we will allow for more ventilation of just opening up windows I know that um, there's a lot of safety issues around having open windows but I, I wanted to ask the question about opening windows and ventilation well, I'll, I'll let Tyler answer that on, on HVAC equipment, but the more outside air we bring into the building when it's hot and humid, the harder our equipment has to work to try to cool that temperature off. So uh, that causes problems in itself, but I'll let Tyler answer that. And I, I was messing with the slide. I didn't hear the whole question, but outside air versus return air and filtration? Just asking opening about opening windows. windows. Okay. The question was. And, <clears throat> classroom windows and we can provide the outside air or the fresh air with the outside air dampers on individual units and so is it <clears throat> with the amount of buildings old brand new all the different variations that you could have we have it so one common ingredient though is outside air and, and adjusting those dampers to, to allow that fresh air to come in to all the individual spaces. And isn't that one of the strategies that you're utilizing is increasing? It is, it is. So in, and so for district-wide, what we wanna to try to do is increase that from what used to be a normal of 10% open outside air. And, and it all varies on the time of the year. You know, um, middle of August, I would I would like to see you know in the amount of students, but I'd like to see a zero percent open, to, not to bring that hot air, that humidity in. But um, and now we're going to have to have that at a minimum of thirty percent open. Um, but then again, weather dictates this, and, and when we roll into December and January, um, it's, it's going to be very hard on equipment. So I, I'm, I don't know what a damper is, but it sounds like um, rather than having building windows open, essentially we're going to find a different way to get that outside air into buildings through these, through the, the HVAC systems. Right, and we're upgrading our filters too, so we'll be able to filter that air that is coming in. Thank you. I'm just curious about custodial staff. Do you have the staffing you need to be able to clean the buildings? the way you need to overnight that's gonna that's gonna be a challenge for us and, and we're gonna have to look at some options of shuffling some staff around possibly bringing additional staff on or paying overtime we're looking at we have these mister systems that I'll let Judd explain to you how exactly they work that what we can use to completely disinfect that building uh, every night uh, in elementary school, that's probably four to six hours. In a, in a high school, you're probably talking uh, 16 hours to uh, miss it to do that. And I'll let Judd talk to you a little bit about how that system works. Yes, uh, just recently we have purchased um, 
an atomizing mister for every facility. You know, at the middle school level and the high school level, we have multiple units. Um, but what this piece of equipment allows us to do is to go into each classroom in public space every night and, and fully disinfect every surface. Um, so it's a, it's a quick and efficient way to do that, uh, which we think will, will save some uh, labor hours, um, but still it, it's going to be beyond you know, our current staffing level. So that wasn't probably what we anticipated in our budget this year was the extra staffing. Have you all had discussions about that? Or well, we're still waiting to see what model we're in and, and how many students we're going to have. So that's kind of ever-changing depending on where we end up uh, with attendance. But, uh, yes, that's, we've, we've talked about some options on moving some staff around. Uh, the fear is we can't hire staff. We're having the same problem with trying to buy products. Uh, Judd had a heck of a time trying to get the uh, spray bottles for the disinfect. That just everybody's buying them, and there's not enough out there. So, uh, and and of course that makes the price go up also. The, the logistics on having the the split hybrid and having kids attend back to back Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, was that to uh, provide like an opportunity to do that deep clean then between Tuesday and Wednesday? Because I know there had been talk for a while that we would alternate and it would be like Monday, Wednesday, and then Tuesday, Thursday, how the hybrid would be split. But since we're sandwiching them together, does that buy like a little bit of um, I don't know, do you think, I guess this is a pause for two days, is that by time in between on the cleaning or is it the same deep level of cleaning every night or what is that? Our plan right now is to do the deep misting cleaning every night. So, uh, you know, having that gap, you know, if you had the gap in the middle of the week, possibly you could do something with it, but we're going to be able to disinfect everything every night. So we're comfortable with whatever that model looks like. The, could you speak a little bit to the the drinking fountains? That was something that I you know being able kids to get and staff to get water throughout the day, um, and there were some steps that looked like in terms of continuing access or what the cleaning process around that would be. Yes, and what we're talking about here in this slide is kind of purging our water systems because we've been closed so long. But mm -hmm. so so what we will do is we'll go through and we'll uh, run the water in, in every every faucet and make sure we've got we've got fresh water in, in the system. The, the drinking fountains, we've kind of honestly went back and forth with that a little bit. Uh, the uh, one intent was to close off the bubblers, the piece you put your mouth on, mm -hmm. and the, the fear was that kids need the water. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll periodically disinfect that throughout the day. And, and let them continue to do it with, I think Shelby's going to recommend that they bring their own water when possible, but have that there as a backup. Bring like a water jug to fill, is that what you mean? Yeah, so the county health department recommended that we not close water stations. Mm -hmm. That was directly from them. And so um, we will have kids who want to bring their own water bottles. We're going to encourage that, but for those who forget one, can't afford one, we want to have that water. Uh, and again, COVID does not pass through the hands, and if you get it in your mouth, it goes to your stomach and it's killed by stomach acid. So it's really a respiratory issue. So um, wash your hands before the drinking fountain, wash your hands after the drinking fountain, and we're good. <coughs> 
Thank you. Um, my question is about the use of indoor and outdoor facilities. I, and later on in our presentation, Food Services has a suggestion of doing some of the uh, eating outside or in flex spaces to try to do that. I was wondering if, especially at our higher concentrated, high capacity buildings, are we looking at creatively using outside space as well? Anything from you know temporary, you know almost uh, outdoor event space tents and things like that to, to get students outdoors as well as indoors. Again, obviously weather permitting, but I just didn't know. We'll be driving by each of our schools and seeing <laughs> outdoor facilities set up as well. But that has been talked about. There's no plans to at this time, but that has been talked about to allow them to spread out throughout the building and outside, weather permitting. Okay. Thank you. I heard that as well. I was curious if we were looking at that. I think you already answered my question about um, the higher grade filtration systems in HVAC. Is that specifically, um, there's no proof that any of that will trap the virus. Am I correct in that? This is just for air purity or? Yeah, so district-wide, I mean, standard filter contract that we have now is a MERV-8. Mm -hmm. um, and, and per Children's Mercy um, and, and conversations with other vendors and contractors, it's to trap those smaller particles back to Shelby, you know, in the mask and, and, and those smaller things that could travel. How can we do that? What, what could we do better? And, and that would be a MERV 11 filter. Um, and is that good enough? And, and is there anything that we can do better than that? And and so and if we do know, so let me back. If, if we're going to do Merv 11, we're going to do every classroom, gymnasiums, cafeterias, hallways, front entryways. Let's let's do it district wide. Um, but what about the areas in the nurse's office, isolation rooms? What else can we do? And so. We're looking at options. If the equipment can handle it, can we increase the filtration even more? And can we go to MERV 13 to collect the even smaller particles? Um, and then there's conversations of double filtration. Is there something else? Is there a secondary unit that we can bring in? And, and will that help against the COVID? So, I mean, it's the, the conversations are there and what can we do and what can't we do? Well, thank you for staying on top of that. Again, I know everything's evolving, and so there may even be some new information that comes out between now and the start of school, but thanks for keeping on top of that. Thank you guys so much. Wow, big job. Um, the hand sanitizer stations, is there gonna be one in every classroom, or what does that look like in each building? Yeah, so we've, we have purchased a um, hand sanitizer dispenser for every classroom in the district. And then we've purchased additional units um, that we can strategically place throughout high traffic areas um, so that students have the opportunity to use that you know, when they're coming back in from recess, going out to recess, um, to and from lunch. So they'll, they'll be available in those high traffic areas as well. Okay. And then my follow-up question is, um, aside from the misting that we're going to be doing every night, what else does our cleaning process look like to ensure the um, health and safety of our students and staff? Yeah, so we're, we are um, developing um, routines for our day custodial staff so that they can um, essentially rotate throughout the building and disinfect uh, high, high frequency touch points, door hardware, the water fountains we, we've mentioned, um, doors into restrooms. So all of those uh, surfaces that are touched by you know, many students um, frequently 
we'll have a rotation in place to sanitize those and disinfect. Thank you. Do we, do we need another circle or are we good on this? I have one more question. Um, if we find that there is something that would be beneficial in combating COVID or improving the buildings and there is a price tag on it that proves to be unwieldy, my apologies. If there is something that proves to be beneficial or you find that it's beneficial and the price tag proves to be unwieldy, would that be information that would potentially alter some of the bond presentation that you would be coming to us with on as we move forward on that? I mean, because it is a capital expense and I mean, I don't know what's out there, that's y'all's job, but if we get in a situation where there's something that is, you know, best recommended practice by the medical community or the building community, there's always a potential for that. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, we're exploring different kinds of uh, approaches mm -hmm. to make sure that we have clean air. But we want to make sure that before we would make any kind of investments, that the strategy actually works. So um, that's where I think they're doing a really great job of working with health experts and folks with expertise, obviously, in HVAC and filter systems to uh, kind of look at different strategies. The answer is um, we would be open to anything that keeps us safe, but we also want to make sure that if we're going to invest in something going forward that it's proven to work. Is that fair, Bob? That is, and, and one of the issues is going to be being able to get the product or the service, whatever it is, everybody's going to be trying to to purchase that. So even if we decided that we needed, I don't know, whatever it was for every building, the chances of us being able to purchase that and get it installed this school year is, is, is going to be limited by product availability. So we're fighting that all the time. Plexiglass that we were purchasing, we were struggling to get. Almost every product we're trying to buy, disinfectant was a, was a challenge. So you gotta remember everybody else is doing the same thing we're trying to do. Um, I was just gonna say, I appreciate, I, I, I can't imagine as the conversation about all the different learning options, remote and hybrid, as each of those change, I can't imagine the impact that it's had on, on the facilities team in trying to think about how to prepare those buildings and how many supplies to order. And, and it's not like you can purchase two months ago when we didn't know exactly what we were gonna need, knowing that that could be a, a, a wasted expenditure. So I appreciate the complexities it's um, created for operations and facilities. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sure everybody saw the article from Blue Valley today that they had plexiglass installed and, and so it's just thinking about those types of things and um, whether or not they're available. Yeah, or. yeah that was a neat, uh, uh, what they were able to do there was, that was kind of a neat thing, but those are the sorts of things I think as districts will will look at as options. It, it's going to go back to availability and price. It is absolutely true, I mean prices have really gone up because people know they can get the price for it, mm -hmm. right? So. Thank you. Okay, I think. Does anybody, were there, I think that was it. Okay, uh, moving on to activities, extracurricular and co-curricular, and 
Thank you. Mr. Craig? He's transitioning. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, like Dr. Fulton said earlier, we don't have a lot of information to share because Keisha hasn't come out with their fall guidelines yet. Now, they have several documents out online about mitigation in, for certain sports that we'll be sharing with all our coaches. The ADs have those now. We'll be meeting with the ADs here tomorrow about making sure that those coaches are educated along with our trainers. So there's really not a much more than what's there that I have for you. We don't have any dates on when we start. Um, we hope to get that maybe to maybe Monday, may, probably Tuesday. They have a big executive director's meeting on Monday to go over the superintendent surveys that will be uh, sent out tomorrow. But before, I do want to say one thing, though. I think our athletic directors and our coaches, and I know Bill's associate principals and band music teachers, they have done a heck of a job following our guidelines. I mean, we've been at this since June 15th. And those coaches and those ADs, band teachers, music teachers, they have worked extremely hard keeping our kids safe and allowing them to participate. And I, and I really commend our coaches and our ADs for staying on top of it. If you haven't been to one of those, uh, the high school sites to see how they social distance, to see how they have them in small bubbles, in groups, following all our protocols and our guidelines, it's impressive. And we have been able to continue conditioning and with our, with our guidelines to provide at least an activity that we know is critical for achievement. They go hand in hand. Without the activities and co-curricular activities, you know, they complement each other. We need both. So I'm confident moving forward that Keisha will come out with guidelines for us concerning when this season starts, when we can start up, but that won't be until sometime uh, Monday or Tuesday of next week. Questions for Bill and I? I'll just make it a free-for-all? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I know a lot of high schools have been conditioning outside. Um, is there, do you have a, any idea when and if kiddos may be able to go inside to do some of their conditioning? It's a great question. We won't know that until we get Keisha's guidelines and when those season starts. Currently, we're doing only outside activities, and we're not planning on going inside anytime soon. Okay. Uh, for one fact, is to keep our buildings as clean as we can. And we've agreed as a group that uh, at this point, we're just conditioning outside okay. and not scrimmaging, but scheming plays mm -hmm. and defenses, but not scrimmaging. Thank you. I know we've had a couple of kids who are conditioning have positive COVID tests, and I'm curious if that has translated into additional, just a kind of case study, if additional kids have tested positive as a result of those, I'm sure it's hard to figure out, you know, your kids who are training for lacrosse are probably hanging out after practice and doing that, you can't control how they're Those cases outside. that we've had um, were clusters, and they were all kind of in the same bubble especially the one at the one attendance area. They had attended a party and they were all together. Um, we work with Shelby and we work with the health department on how we handle those kids and we've mm -hmm. actually had to shut down several programs. We shut down a football program and a soccer program for two weeks 
they're back up and participating again by following the quarantine and the isolation that we do. And Shelby's been a big help in that with the ADs and myself. And we get that. Shelby is a contact and we go through the health department and then we come up with those answers and, and policies. Wonderful. I do want to stress on each incident that we have, Shelby, Mr. Kramer, uh, the principal, the case may be, more than likely I'm involved in it and or Dr. Fulton and maybe even Mr. Smith. But we work all of these issues, so we're, we're pretty much aware of the situations as they arise and what we're doing with them. And I firmly believe we're consistent in the way we're handling them. Or at least we're striving for that consistency. Thank you. And I think a point of that is that we can do everything right and have masks and social distancing, but if those same kids decide to hang out after school, um, they may very well be exposing one another to those things. So the, we can do all the mitigation we want inside of our schools, but what happens after school and what happens on the weekend and what happens that, That's parties? a great point. That's a great point. It kind of goes to Sarah's question earlier in the evening. What can we do? What can parents do? Limit that bubble. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we want to continue with activities and have school, then we really have to follow these same protocols we're doing at school. We have to do at home. And if we can do that for the first nine weeks, we probably can do a lot to move forward. So if I'm a parent, I'm going to try to keep my children in the tightest bubble as I can and allowing them to come to this environment and can try to controlling the environment when they leave us. Thank you. Uh, do, you do you think that there will be guidance on activities and rescheduling activities if they're canceled? Is that, or is that something that might be done at the local building level? I'm just thinking about how much energy in that realm of not just sports, but all sorts of extracurricular activities, scheduling and, and holding facilities. And so if there's um, more need to be canceling some of these events. I, I think Keisha is talking about that. And mm -hmm. I know in the performing arts, they're looking at rescheduling certain events. If we have to, re if we have to cancel, okay. I, I know that's part of that discussion, and until we get that, we won't know where that will be. Okay, but that is something that is part of the explicit yes. conversation. Okay, thank you. Doesn't look like we have any further questions <laughs> on this topic. Okay, okay. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Ziegler, transportation. Good evening. It's my pleasure to speak to what we know uh, as of now with transportation. So um, I want to start by recognizing the, the good relationship we have with uh, our transportation providers that help us with transporting our students uh, as, as we return to learning. Um, we have worked with uh, DS bus lines and our uh, smaller scale transportation providers to review cleaning protocols. So really for transportation, we are focused on the mitigating measures. So parallel to what you saw in the plan and what you heard from in facilities, uh, we do have plans with our providers to increase uh, disinfecting, sanit sanitizing uh, the, the vehicles, the buses, the vans that are in, in use. Um, any high touch surfaces will be frequently cleaned throughout the day. 
Additionally, um, our um, transportation provider and DS bus lines this last spring when we did um, go to stay at home orders, uh, they went ahead and proactively purchased the mister and spray systems that you heard from our facilities team that we also have acquired for our schools. So that's an additional layer of cleaning and disinfection that our buses will be treated with on um, an ongoing basis to ensure that we're doing everything we can to reduce spread. Um, windows, we're a little bit different on a bus and, and in a smaller vehicle, so windows will be open whenever um, the weather conditions are conducive to that, so we have airflow. We are requiring masks of all riders, all drivers, all aides, all individuals that step onto a vehicle for transportation will have a mask. As a district, we're committed to providing additional masks so that every one of those vehicles will have additional masks in the event that a student makes it to a bus stop to step onto a bus and maybe um, has lost a mask or, or didn't have one. So we've, we've planned for that as well. We will be implementing um, on the first day of, of riding assigned seats. Um, and daily roster checks. Those assigned seats uh, go along with a protocol that we've established to minimize students' intermingling as best we can for that ride. So seat assignments will be based on our enrollment. So families typically will enroll. We're gonna be communicating and pushing that enrollment process once we know our start of school dates. And uh, what we'll do is work with our transportation providers to develop that seating chart, but also fill the bus from the back to the front, keeping uh, students from the same family together whenever possible. Um, if they're riding on, on that route, say elementary, we have multiple siblings from a school, they would be seated together. Um, and along that, when we get to the school, we will have a pre prescribed protocol for how we exit the bus from the front to the back, so that again, we don't have students that are crossing in the aisles, that we have a protocol and a procedure that we follow. Um, we have uh, noted in our learning team plans, uh, the precision that they went into in the detail was fantastic, uh, but looking at how we arrive at schools, our buses, uh, we will empty a bus, one bus at a time, so we're not having a massive uh, congregation of students that are coming upon an entrance of the school and we can be orderly uh, in going in. And whenever possible, if we have smaller routes, smaller riders, we are working to reduce the number of riders on buses wherever we can. Um, our goal is to get to one to a seat. Um, that is our, our goal. So on a 70 passenger bus, that would be roughly 24 students. Uh, same procedures for athletics and activities. So whenever we have um, the, the ability to reduce those routes down, and that may be looking at adding additional routes so that we can accomplish that task, we will spread out as best that we can. Um, those are the overall pieces to transportation plan. Um, it is a challenge because you're dealing with a small space, but we also recognize that we have families that rely on that transportation for students to get to school, and that's a necessity for some of our households. I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Is there a potential that we're gonna need additional buses? Um, it sounds like I mean, I know my daughter's bus is pretty darn crowded, and I know that it's gonna be different, obviously, with you know half the alphabet going, mm -hmm. um, but are we thinking about this from a cost perspective in terms of? That's a great question, and um, this spring, there was some initial conversation amongst the transportation providers and the state 
um, in looking at early guidance that came out and some of that guidance has been um, amended. So again, we're focused on our best mitigating measures. But really to accomplish um, in terms of securing additional buses, we have limit, limits to the number of buses that we have access to. There's also limits to the supply of buses um, that our providers can, can get. What we are doing is looking at any routes that we can maybe reduce or maybe we had small riders that are we really needing those routes anymore. So anywhere we can, we can do that to allocate additional buses, we will. And then what happens on a bus, you know, when a kiddo, when and if a kiddo, I guess it's not if, but when a kiddo removes his or her mask, like, what does that look like? I know the bus driver's main job is to stay focused mm -hmm. on the road, so how do we handle that? We have procedures in place that we would do at any, any given time uh, where a student uh, might um, have a choice that might be a difficult one for others around them. So we are asking our, our drivers to communicate with the building staff as soon as they get to the school site and that's how any, any behavior would, would be addressed so that there can be a conversation immediately and not wait um, to maybe take some time to fill out any type of documentation. We were asking our drivers to communicate on site. Thank you. We, we have cameras on all of our buses um, and we monitor those cameras frequently. Uh, anytime there's a problem, as, as Dr. Ziegler says, we do have discipline procedures in place. Most of the discipline is handled by the principal where that child is picked up and delivered each day. And we try to get after those pretty quickly. And, and uh, you know, the, the consequence could be that the, the student lo loses writing privileges for a period of time. Uh, it might be as simple as a conference, whatever the least amount of discipline it takes to change the behavior. Thank you. And we also recognize that those are needing to be individual conferences, individual situations. And this is all going to be new for all of our learners. Sure. So proactive communication out from our bus providers, our transportation providers to our families as families enroll, that'll be part of what we've already discussed and, and what we'll provide um, in, in being proactive and, and getting students ready to ride the bus. And certainly there's going to be a period of time here that, you know, Kids are going to have to be educated on the mask to wear them. Yep. I may have to enroll in the same class, as a matter of fact. Uh -huh. <laughs> no further questions on this topic. Thank, Thank you. you, Dr. Simmons. Services. Mrs. Coconut. Good evening, everybody. I just want to share with you that food service has been operating since spring break. We have not stopped. <laughs> um, we have social distance. We have worn masks. We have served food. And speaking of food, we've prepared 256,386 meals for children since spring break. So anyway, kudos to my staff. And we've had a great partnership with district volunteers that have actually distributed those meals for us. So. My staff prepares them and the volunteers, the teachers, the aides, the nurses, social workers, they all sign up and they are out there distributing. So it's been a lot of fun, truly, since March. We truly have plans. We always feed kids and we have plans for breakfast and lunch, just as you would expect, for on-site learning. The challenge we have had, now that we kind of know where we're heading with hybrid and remote, we are ready to gear up and make those plans for what it looks like for hybrid and remote. Keep in mind, my program is federally funded and there are federal guidelines and I have to follow them to the nth degree. 
The one thing I do want to bring up, all the families currently are used to getting meals from food service at no cost. That's the way the federal government allowed us since March. That changes when school begins. We then go to the model as all kids would be. They would pay based on their eligibility status. So they're full price, they're reduced, or they're free. Regardless whether they're in school learning or they're hybrid or they're remote learning. So that will be an education for us to um, work with families on that. Um, tied into that, we are truly open and accepting applications for free and reduced as of now. And we've had a, um, a large number of people that have already come in and applied. So we're encouraging that to get up and going at this point. I will tell you we've had supply chain challenges this year. Um, March, April, May, I would spend anywhere from 8 to 12 hours a week just finding food. Because think about the manufacturing plants that have had COVID. They're shutting down. And the distributors can't get their hands on food. And so it's truly been a challenge. So in all of our menus, we say subject to change due to availability. We don't like to go to that option, but we've had to go to that option. And I really am sorry about that for the kids. But our menus are designed this fall to be um, student favors and to be fast service because we know that's going to be our goal. We're going to utilize social distancing when the kids come in. We will serve everything on disposables. Everything's prepackaged as far as the silverware and the condiments. We'll serve the entree and if it's a potato and then the student will go to the salad bar and get prepackaged, pre-portioned items there and then go to the cashier and get checked out. Cashiers, we have purchased acrylic barriers to go around all our cashier stations, so we'll have the distancing from that perspective. Um, questions on what we've designed? Or? We're ready to go. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I know we um, changed the schedule a little bit at the beginning of the summer, and did, do we go to an every other day? We're, we're still going on a Monday and Wednesday distribution. Okay. And speaking of that, we have went ahead and extended our um, summer meal program. was supposed to end today. We have extended it now through Friday the 21st of August. Okay. Because we've delayed school, we have extended that. So we, on Mondays, we distribute two breakfasts and two lunches, and Wednesday we do three and three. At the same four locations, it's still just continuing. Wonderful. So if a family had students that were doing online only learning, but they qualified for free lunch, there's a way they can still go and pick up? The During the school year, it's going to look different. Yes, they can get free meals, but it's going to look totally different. Because now I have an accountability perspective to count only one meal per child. Okay. And I can only feed kids that are actually enrolled in the district. Current programs since March, I've been able to serve anyone from age 1 to 18, regardless whether they live, wherever they lived. Mm -hmm. That stops when school starts. So they actually have to be enrolled. So say a parent has a couple of kids at home, but has a 3-year-old that's not enrolled, I cannot feed that 3-year-old. Right. But they could come pick up the meals for their 3-enrolled students yes. that were still doing mm -hmm. remote. <laughs> Once we get all this designed. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I'm looking at software, I'm looking at a lot of things to account for every kid and their meal. Mm -hmm. And do you, do you think that that's going to be a daily thing or is it going to be more like the summer program <laughs> that they can pick up two days worth of food? We're looking okay. at a multiple day pickup right now. Okay. Right. And I'm still trying to figure out if I'm going to do it at every site or one site because I've got to be cognizant of 
all these buildings have got kids learning in buildings. Do they really want circle pickups of other parents? I don't think so. So I've got to look at what day do I distri distribute, which buildings do I distribute. So I've got logistic nightmares oh, right yeah. now. So yes, I'm not sleeping either. So. Okay, well, <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, for, for not sleeping. Oh, you're welcome. But yeah, none of us are sleeping. But, um, but thank you for, yeah. for all of the care you give to yeah. feeding our kids. Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Sinclair, and I'll do mine after. Okay, I, Reverend, I think you hit a lot of them. Um, the, it, what do we need to know about students eating outside of the lunchroom? What's important to, to be aware well, of there? Well, um, we're really just gonna rely on the building principal to give the direction on where he or she wants the child or the groups to eat. We're gonna provide foods. We're trying to do it in a way that there's no mess. We're not doing mashed potatoes and gravy. The kids love it. We're just not doing those messy things so they can safely take that tray to wherever they're designated to eat their meal. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, my follow-up is on the um, after-school meal plans, the snack plans. Are we able to participate in those? Yes, I've already, I've, I've already sent out emails twice now to principals. Perfect. And we've got more buildings um, up, uh, that are able to do that. I can't remember off the top of my head, it's over 20 this year. And so it's up to the building to get back to me to tell me how they want to run the program. But yes, we could run that program. Great, thank you so much. But it has to be eaten on site, that's the key. <laughs> well, and so that then, for those kiddos who are doing the hybrid or the online, yeah, yeah, that doesn't work if it's, right. even if they're an enrolled student, you I, have no. to be, because part of the requirement for that specific program is that you have to be. At this time, there's no waivers from the federal government. Well, if you're remote, right. that for that program, if you're going to get that food, you have to eat it on site. So if you're in the hybrid and you're not there two days a week, mm -hmm. then on those two days that you're not there. But part of the program means you're supposed to be an educational activity to receive the, the program benefit. So you can't just show up at 3 o'clock and get food. You have to be there for the educational activity. Has someone, are we aware of anyone raising that as a particular issue with the federal government on that particular program no, requirement? No, not at we this know. point. That's really, honestly, I hate to say it, Heather, That's it's beyond, on the low on the totem pole. Right, sure, totally. Yeah. I'm just thinking about people in food crisis right. and potentially additional issues moving forward even past the semester as we enter the second wave. How we have been focused have. in my world of food yeah. service gurus we have been focused to get the federal government to allow us to run the summer guidelines and not do free reduced That'd and paid. Great. We That'd have be really great. been focused on that. And there has been some movement in Washington on that, but not a lot. Because that would save all of us a lot of headaches to have to do all this tracking that we would have to do. That but is, it's a funding thing. It really is a funding thing, the money. Right. That is really useful information to have. Thank you. So, but we're trying. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Okay. Nice. We'll call if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Lane, Executive Director of Technology, and this is the last department. <laughs> I'm sure we can come up with something. Save the best for one of the best for last. <laughs> I only have only have five or six hundred pages of notes to go through. So we'll be through this just as quick as we possibly can. So. I know there's a question hanging out there about VPN access, and, and I will certainly answer that in just one moment. The first thing I would like to say is that the goal of, all right, is that better? 
the goal of the of the ICT team is obviously to support the learning process, and in those places uh, where it's it's also critical to support the business functions uh, of the district. And as as Dr. Atha pointed out, the operational side of the organization is in the job of supporting what we need to do to educate our learners, take care of our faculty, staff, employees, and make sure that the, the business of the district gets done. And so one of the things I want to emphasize here is that um, a primary goal that, that I remind my team of weekly in our, in our staff meetings is, is that um, we serve a noble cause. And there is, there is really nothing more noble, I think, than being the, the caretaker for, for the future. And that's really what we do. And so I, I know in the spring, we had connectivity issues that were out there. I own that. That is my team's responsibility. And we have taken measures to make sure that that is mitigated to its fullest extent for the coming period of what is probably uncertainty. I just wanted everybody in here to understand and everybody who's, who's watching and listening to understand that it is a painful thing for me to learn and my team to learn that we have a student who has missed opportunities that can't get those opportunities back. And I take that, it, it's, it's very personal for me because my, my childhood was one such that I was one of those students, that I was in a family and in a situation where if an opportunity was missed, it was just plain missed. It didn't come around again. So we took that as a department to heart. And we have done some things over the, the interim to, to do our very best to guarantee that we are going to provide every employee and every student with a device that is functional, that meets the needs that they have to do the things that they need to do. And we've taken measures to do the very best job that we can to ensure that their connectivity, to the extent that we are responsible for that connectivity, will continue to function. So we have eliminated VPN from the equation. We've added a content filter that doesn't rely on a VPN connection to do that. We have collaborated with, with members of various different departments to make sure that the learning resources that our students need are based in systems that are easily accessible from our devices, and in the case our device doesn't function, other devices, so that we can leverage the other resources that are out there. The other thing I would ask and I would pitch at this time would be a plea to the, the businesses in our community that offer internet connectivity. They stepped up big time. They stepped up big time in, in recent history. And I would ask that they continue to do that because there are places out there, there are families out there that simply do not have the resources to acquire the access that's required for them to be successful in a remote or an online learning opportunity. And I am very proud of the work that this district has done to this point in time to make any of these models possible. But as we've said before, there's a very real concern out there that we may be in a situation at some point where we have to rely on remote learning as the primary function. And if we are there, we cannot afford to have our students miss opportunities because their device doesn't work or their connection doesn't work. And so we, we took that to heart. We have spent a lot of time in the interim looking at those and doing the very best job we could to anticipate the needs that are going to be out there, to resolve the issues that we know exist, and take care of things as best as we can. 
I wish I could tell you that it will be perfect, that everything will be glorious and it will work in a way that nobody's ever seen before. It will. <laughs> and when it doesn't, we will make it work that way. You have a dedicated team of IT professionals working for this district who believe in the mission of this district, who believe that what we do is indeed a noble cause. And we take that very seriously. We have looked at things all the way from how do we, how do we position personnel? How do we keep our personnel in places so that we are available for support but minimize our footprint? So that if somebody else needs the space that we would have to occupy, we can give them that space. We have pivoted the vast majority of our folks to do as much of their work remotely as possible. Not because working from home is so wonderful because, you know, for a while it was and then sometimes it's not, but because we can offer the space that those folks took to those people who might need the physical space to work. We have team members in my team that need that physical space to do their work. And we have worked really hard to make sure that they are as low risk as possible because we need them to be viable for the next period of time. We need them to be healthy. We need them to be safe. We need them to be able to perform these critical jobs, not be sick and not be out and not suffer from this, from this illness. So we have taken both a technical and a pragmatic look at what we've done and we've really done some philosophical looking at what processes and procedures do we have in place that we can change and improve and what things can we stop doing? What things can we stop doing so we can refocus our energies? So my slide up here is very, is very brief and it kind of belies the work that really has been done there. But it gives you a good overview of really what we're trying to accomplish. And that is, we want to make sure that our connections, both in our buildings and to our buildings, are as strong as they can be. We're doing that through, through, through improvements for switching equipment. We're doing that with the new content filter. In, in collaboration with many members of many different teams on uh, the Canvas Learning Management System, new data services and analytics going online. And then along with that, the summer support that we provide every summer and the annual maintenance through patches and upgrades and those types of things that have to take place. We've done all of those things and, and we're very confident, we're very hopeful that the, the, the coming time will be something where we can find success, we can see success, and, and maybe, maybe just maybe, it doesn't have to be quite so negative. It doesn't have to be quite so fearful. And we can get on the other side of this thing with kids who have had the opportunities to establish grit because this definitely builds grit and be successful in a time that a lot of people might write them off as not being able to be successful. And they will be. And it's partly my responsibility to be a part of a bigger team that ensures that. And so with that, I would stand for any questions that you have. And I thank you for your time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this one started. So um, how many of our kids right now do we have a grasp on do not have internet access currently? Like what is our percentage of kids without access? That's an exceptionally difficult question to answer. Mm -hmm. We have a survey that was, was sent out. We had about a 50% response rate on that. I don't want to steal Dr. Ziegler's thunder, but we had a, a survey that came back in. We had about a 50% response rate. Out of that 50%, 1% reported they didn't have access. Mrs. Lewis and, and worked with the foundation and her title buildings and, and found that those numbers probably are not accurate, at least for our title buildings. 
I think the answer to your question is we don't really know. We continue to research, we continue to look at ways to figure that out, but we don't really know. And so I think that's why the strategy going forward has to be to, yes, obviously, if the district can provide resources to those families through things like hotspots or whatever, we should investigate that. But again, to call on our community and ask those providers, can you continue to provide help to those who can't afford it themselves? And how do we get our folks connected to your service? Well, and I, I, I like the idea of our providers being able to step up to that challenge. It just does seem like we need to have something in place as a backup plan from the district to make sure that we don't let, um, you know, a lack of generosity on someone else's part. I mean, it's going to be critical. We're looking at a whole year. Yeah, and there. We, we're exploring multiple options to make sure that students have access. The key thing that we have to figure out is, are the solutions that we're identifying, are those the solutions that the students need? Right. And we know hotspots is one. Uh, and But the cost of a hotspot per student is, is approximately what? This, this is where it gets tricky because you've got to think about the purchase of the hotspot that can vary anywhere from about $80 to $130 per unit, depending on where you get it whether it's, and then you have the data plan that goes along with it. There are organizations out there that offer program hotspots, but sometimes those program hotspots come with some restrictions on what the hotspots are allowed to do and those types of things that could make it a less functional option for, for folks who are in uh, a class that requires streaming media or, or video conferencing or those types of things. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very challenging. It is, it is, it's very challenging. Okay. Uh, Jamie? Mr. Lane, I, I just want to tell you I'm really inspired by your story. Um, I appreciate your passion to what you do. Um, it, I mean, we've been here for three and a half hours, and I was like, go IT when you're talking. So <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I, I really do appreciate it. <laughs> that, that, that may very well be a first for me. 25 years in. I mean, I mean it. I was like, this is amazing. Um, so thank you for your commitment to all kids. I really appreciate that. Um, Canvas. So... I'm excited that we're not going to have this VPN headache for you, for parents, for us, everybody. Um, is it, can you just talk about, is it easy to use? I mean, should kids be afraid of it? I mean, kids aren't afraid of it. What am I, what am I saying? Should parents be afraid of it? Is it, you know, when I'm trying to figure out what work my kids need to do, is this going to be intuitive? Or? By and large, this will be transparent to the person using the device. Okay. There, there really isn't a whole lot for a person using device to have to do to get the content filter working. Okay, so parents should not freak out over a new learning with Canvas. I, 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 Canvas, Canvas is different from content filtering. So Canvas is an online resource and it's the learning management system the district has chosen right. to use to, to coordinate coursework and those types of things. Content filtering really only applies to the connection between the student's device and the internet in general to prevent objectionable content and those types of things from being delivered. So it's separating your mind learning management system from content filter because content filter really is just 
a means of governance over the internet connection that's required to get that person's device to Canvas. And I, I, if I said content filter, I meant learning management system. I just basically, the bottom line is I just want to reassure parents that this is not going to be difficult to, to understand. So we created a rubric as we uh, looked at different learning management systems and we asked the thought exchange, what do, you, what do we need in a learning management system, both of staff, students and parents, students, staff and student, uh, st Staff and parents. It's late. It is late. Yeah. And Again, we may have asked students there. as well. But one of the, well, the number one thing that came back was it has to be user friendly. Yeah. And so our rubric, um, that was one of the main criteria of the rubric is that it is user friendly to kids, it's user friendly to teachers, user friendly to parents. And um, Canvas rated very high in that aspect. And so we also have a, an instructional coach in the district that is creating some parent videos. Great. So that will be helpful as well. Very. Thank you. Reverend Guy? I know that we were offering um, Wi-Fi connections in the parking lots of our schools during the spring. Do we have any anecdotal evidence of how many students might have used that option, because I know even public libraries were closed at that point, so they're really, and restaurants were closed, so there really weren't other places to get Wi-Fi if you didn't have it in the home. I don't really have any solid data for you on how many customers we had using that, but we kind of approached it from the perspective that if, if one kid needs it, that's plenty. Okay. So we're, we will continue that practice. Okay. Mr. Stratton. Um, I'll mash my two questions together. The first one's related to these. Didn't you report to us in the springtime that you're, you're, you are able to tell how many times or how many devices are being signed onto? So it's a different way to get at who's using the device and therefore having connectivity, right? Correct. And didn't we have a, a surprisingly high number? We did. So in, in, during the during the, the remote work, uh, learning period, we did have a significant percentage of our students who, who did connect. Um, I would have to go back and look at that data again. It's been a while since I looked at it, but it, it was consistently at least high 70s and in some cases on some days low 90s we saw those devices check in. Mm -hmm. um, what we would like to see with the use of things like Canvas, the new content filter, and some of those mobile device management tools we already have is if we can get what even more reliable data on, on usage and activity. And then my next one has to do with hardware. Um, obviously with the COVID situation, hardware demand has spiked through the roof. Have we been able to stay ahead of that to make sure that we've been able to get the hardware? Because I'm, I'm hearing businesses and schools are having a tough time getting hardware now. That's a wonderful question. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it allows me to offer some props to our partner in Apple. They really pulled through. We have all of our iPads we ordered. Okay, great. And they're delivered in the buildings. Oh. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Sinclair. Uh, many of my questions have already been asked. You don't have to so ask I feel more. like You're fine. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, You're good. No need to. <laughs> um, Ms. Goodburn? Ms. Embry. It's probably more a Dr. Aitha question. I, um, it, for hotspots and Wi-Fi access, 
Is that something CARES funding can pay for? And similarly, I know there's this SPARC funding that is potentially coming to the district via the county. Is any of that funding that we can use to support student connectivity? Absolutely. As long as we can connect it to COVID-19, and I believe we can. Okay, great. In case these businesses don't pull through for us with free Wi-Fi for our kids. I mean, if we're in a remote learning situation in December, we can't have a kid needing to rely on accessing something in a parking lot. Right. Are we going to be relying on our social workers then to help identify which kids or how does that look since it doesn't look like we've captured all the kids that we need to? Well, you know, I think anybody in the school who's interacting with a child where they can see whether or not they have internet access is, is going to help us get a better handle on who needs assistance with Wi-Fi. And I, I think as, as, Drew, as Drew points out, that the challenge is there may not be, you know, we think about hotspots as being the automatic solution, but as he was sharing, it's expensive. So that may be the best approach. There may be other approaches that we can do that would uh, help that student out as well that might be a little bit more affordable. So the one, we're going to be in such better, a such better place this school year with really being able to drill down to, to the level of every child and understand whether or not they need assistance in getting Wi-Fi support. And we're prepared to do that. I mean, I agree. It sounds like we could use that care funds, but it doesn't sound like we have a true handle on how many kiddos would really, you know, we can't really put a, an not, estimate. Not quite yet, but we know we'll have students that will need help. And then we'll have to just look at uh, what the right solution might be. You know, for example, if you have a cluster of students in a, in a limited geographical area, there might be things we could do in, in terms of setting up a, a bus as a hotspot. But we won't know that until we really get a, a, a clear census of how many students actually need help with accessing Wi-Fi. Is that accurate, Drew? It is. Yeah. The, the one parting shot on, on that, that type of connectivity we want to keep in mind here is that the hotspots represent a Band-Aid. Um, the hotspot itself provides an internet connection, but it does not provide an equal internet connection as, say, broadband connectivity. And so a student who has a cellular Wi-Fi hotspot doesn't necessarily have the same level of access to those resources that a student who has broadband access does. Now, there's talk around technology, 5G technology, and those types of things about maybe helping with that. But at the end of the day, right now, physics, physics are physics. You can only do so many things with, with radio frequency at our current knowledge level. And so, again, it's one of those things where we absolutely don't want to use that as some reason to delay getting that Band-Aid to the students who need it the most. But it also goes back to that idea of, as a community, we really need to step into this and decide, is, is, is Internet a kind of nice-to-have thing or is it a must-have thing these days? And if it's a must-have thing these days, as a community, we... We need to fix that, and we need to make sure that broadband access is something that every, everybody can get. Thank you very much. Certainly. Thank you. Should I say that concludes our report? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this report is going to be in an ongoing state over the course of the next yes. year. So it's, it's for the it moment, is a living document. It is a living document. <laughs> can, I, can I ask on, on that note? Um, 
if it's possible to get kind of regular updates from Shelby or other, I just feel like the science and the data is changing so quickly around COVID and I would love, I don't want to force Shelby to talk to us all the time and stay for four hours <laughs> of her time all the time, but I think finding a way to have some sort of regular, even just keeping us up to speed sure. on the public health information would be great. That may be, that may be something that I could do both through my superintendent report and the Friday memo just to keep, to keep you updated because this is going to be of high interest to the community, obviously. I'd like to give everybody a standing ovation for all their work on this. That was just <laughs> incredible. Um, so I actually thought about taking a five minute break, but really let's just get through this and be done so we can all be free for the evening. Um, <laughs> Moving on to item 3.1, approval of the classified salary schedule for 2021. I'll seek the motion in the second, and you can say a couple words to it, Dr. Bolton, and we'll vote on it. Do I have a motion to approve? So moved. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Second? Second. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. Um, go ahead, Dr. Fulton. Sure. We're recommending an approval of increasing the 2021 classified salary schedule of 1.4% on the base, providing step movement and up to 7.8% uh, 7 increase for health insurance. This is consistent uh, with the negotiations that we've had with teachers. Great, thank you. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none, that's unanimous. And moving on to item 3.02, approval to purchase legal services. Again, I'll seek the motion in the second. So moved. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Second. Thank you, Ms. Hembree. Go ahead, Dr. Fulton. Sure. Annually, the board approves law firms. This is something that we need to do. Uh, a number of these firms are used for specialized services, including legal uh, support, as well as investigations. Uh, approving these firms simply allows us to use their services, but it does not obligate us to use the firms. This simply says we have approval to use them. Okay. Um, are there any questions for Dr. Fulton prior to our vote at this time? Well, I, I just have a question. So how then, and, and with Rachel England obviously being part of our staff, why would we go to an outside legal service, for example? Um, there are things, you know, you, you need bond attorneys. Uh, this this also includes our uh, Greg Oheen, for example, his firm. Uh, but some of the other specialized ser services that we need from time to time involve special education. Um, they might involve things like we want to do with investigations and these firms have the ability to conduct those investigations as needed. And so that's why, uh, that's why we use these outside firms from time to time. For specialized services that go beyond what we either have the internal uh, expertise to do or perhaps the capacity to do. Thank you. And, and Dr. Fulton, another specialized service we use uh, is bond counsel. Right. So, and extremely special. Are there any additional questions? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, that passes unanimously and the meeting is adjourned. Thank you very much. <laughs>